That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Does it work? Does it work in the NFL with Justin Herbert and Jim Harbaugh? Does it work at the University of Washington with Jed Fish? Does it work at Alabama with Kalen DeBoer? Does it work for Oregon going to the Big Ten Conference? How about Utah in the Big 12? Do Stanford and Cal work in the ACC? Does Chauncey Billups work with a better Blazers roster? Does Major League Baseball work in Portland? I want to start today's show with fearless predictions for 2024. I want yours. We're still technically in January. So you got a little peek into 2024. But I want you to give me your fearless predictions for the year. Do you think Colorado's going to win the Big 12? Call in and say so. Do you think that the Blazers will be sold? Call in and say so. Will the Seattle Seahawks hire Chip Kelly? What fearless prediction do you want to make? Get it on the record. It doesn't count if you just think it in your head and you tell people later, oh, I knew that was going to happen. No, no, no. you got to call into this radio show. you got to give me your fearless prediction. 503-417-7575. Who's going to be first? Who's going to be the first to give their fearless prediction for 2024? I'm going to give mine. I want yours. I've been thinking a lot about all these things. You know, I, I'm constantly thinking, right? All right? It's one of the curses of writing a sports column, hosting a radio show. You're always thinking about the next column. You're always thinking about the radio show. Adrian Wojnarowski, years and years ago, I was at the Fresno Bee. I had just succeeded him. He had been the sports columnist there. He left the Fresno Bee to go on to the Bergen record in New Jersey. And I ran into Woj at an NCAA tournament. And, uh, you know, we're talking and he said, you know, the thing about being a columnist is you're always thinking about the next column. And sometimes people will come up to you and say, hey, I read what you wrote and I liked it. And you're like, you mentally have to depart from it the minute you publish it. And you're on to the next thing. So you, it's not like you sit there and you ruminate about it and you're reading it after it comes out. No, you're moved on. You're like two steps down the pathway. And so for myself, I'm always thinking about, you know, will it work? Did they make the right call? Like I saw that WWE Raw signed a $5 billion deal with Netflix. $5 billion with Netflix. And granted, it's not like mainstream sports it's sort of an entertainment thing but it is a highly consumed piece of programming wwe raw and netflix obviously sees the value in it 
and says, yes, we want that because we know that's going to bring subscribers to Netflix. That's going to be a business decision that we're going to make. And the NFL and Peacock get together on a playoff game and 23 million people tune in and everybody goes, gosh, Peacock became the most downloaded app of that weekend on the Apple Store because everybody was scrambling around trying to figure out how they get Peacock and how to stream the NFL game. And so I, you know, I'm left thinking about that, of course, but I'm thinking about the Pac-12. Did the presidents and chancellors make a mistake? Are they going to have buyer's remorse when one day everything is streaming and everybody goes, well, why didn't you take that Apple deal back in the day? That was like the smartest thing you ever could have done. Subscription-based would have been a windfall for you. Uh, I'm always thinking about the next thing, the next logical progression. And so I present to you my fearless prediction, 24 and I want yours. You can call in and give me one. You can call in and give me two. I will limit you at maybe two and a half. You get to them. But 503-417-7575 is the phone number. I want your predictions for the year. Give me a prediction on the Ducks. Give me a prediction on the Beavers. Give me a prediction on the Blazers, the Huskies, Jed Fish, Kalen DeBoer, Dan Landing, Jonathan Smith. Give me a prediction, something you've been thinking about. 503 417 7575. Here is my first fearless prediction for 2024. It revolves and relates around Chip Kelly. Have you heard the reports about Chip Kelly possibly being linked with Dan Quinn for the Seattle Seahawks job? Have you heard the reports about David Shaw interviewing at numerous places? Well, here's my prediction, and I don't think I'm that far out on a limb. First and foremost, I am going to predict that Chip Kelly spends the 2024 football season, drum roll, in college at UCLA. I don't think he's leaving. Chip Kelly's come on the show a couple of times. I've been in contact with him over the last few months. I think he likes living where he's living. I don't think he's going to trade his zip code for anything in the world. I think he enjoys the college game. I think he's seen the NFL. He's been to that puppet show. He knows how complicated it can be in the NFL. He's not really built for it as a head coach. Going there as a coordinator, whole different story. I think Chip Kelly stays at UCLA because it's a better job than going to the NFL. Further, if he's going to the NFL, is he going with Dan Quinn? Or would he go with his old friend David Shaw? Those guys are close. And I had somebody suggest to me today that maybe the reports are wrong. Maybe the reports have it all backwards. Maybe it's David Shaw who is floating the idea of Chip Kelly as his possible coordinator. I'll buy that before I buy Dan Quinn. We'll keep an eye on Chip Kelly, but my fearless prediction is that Chip Kelly is on the sideline for UCLA's football games this season. Fearless prediction number two. And, oh, Stephen, I'm going to ask you yours as well, so get ready. Fearless prediction number two revolves around Oregon's departure to the Big Ten Conference. How will Oregon fare? In the Big Ten. I got to tell you, when Oregon first made the decision last August, announced they were going with Washington, going to join UCLA and USC in the Big Ten, I looked at it and I said, this is going to be tough. It's going to be harder than they think. Playing those rank-and-file games against Purdue and Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, they're going to be more difficult than Oregon imagines because it's more difficult than the Pac-12 conference. And then I watched the Pac-12 season, and I saw 
Arizona play really well and Oregon State be really decent and Washington State at least the first first month of the season were decent and Colorado was better than expected to start the year. You got programs like Utah and Washington and Oregon and USC and UCLA to some extent and I thought, you know, there's some depth in the Pac-12. Maybe maybe it won't be all that much better than the Big 10, but certainly the top of the Big 10 way better than the top of the Pac-12, right? And I think we saw that the Pac-12 could kind of hang in there a little bit. Not to the extent that they were going to beat Michigan in the national title game, but the Pac-12 got a team in the tournament. And so now I'm looking at it going, well, can Oregon play at the top of the college football playoff? Like, could Oregon be a finalist? Could they get to the national title game again under Dan Lanning? And But there was still Michigan to deal with until this week when Jim Harbaugh took the job with the Los Angeles Chargers. Now, life just keeps getting better and better for Dan Lanning, doesn't it? He caught a break, I think, when Harbaugh went to the Chargers. It costs Michigan their fearless leader. You take Jim Harbaugh away from Michigan, and Michigan is not Michigan. Michigan goes back to being, I think, good but not great. Meanwhile, everybody then pivots, and and who's the pressure on? It's not on Oregon. It's on Ohio State. Yesterday, in the wake of the announcement about Harbaugh to the Chargers, all I kept seeing were reports about how Ohio State has got all the expectations now, all the pressure on Ryan Day. Go win the conference championship next season, Ryan Day. Get in the transfer portal and live in the transfer portal. All this pressure on Ohio State. And I, I'm sorry, but I'm thinking about Dan Lanning now going, wait a minute, Jim Harbaugh's out of his way. Kalen DeBoer, his nemesis, 0-3 against DeBoer, out of his way, gone to Alabama. And now all the pressure's on Ohio State. Like, this is a perfect storm, a beautiful storm of perfection for Dan Lanning. And you think about Lanning's last month, he's hung out with Michael Jordan, joined ESPN on the set of college football playoff title game, got a standing ovation at a Ducks basketball game, picked up talent in the transfer portal because coaches are leaving and all of a sudden the window opens. Kalen DeBoer goes from Washington to Alabama, gets out of his way. Jim Harbaugh gets out of his way and goes to the NFL. Like, I am a big believer in karma, and I'm kind of wondering, like, did Dan Lanning help some old lady across the street? Did he stop and help a woman change, you know, a tire, a pregnant woman with three kids in the car, change her tire on the side of the road? Like, he did some good deed that has caused, like, the uh, the, the college football world to open up to him like an oyster and provide him a path to the national championship tournament like i think oregon right now is is well positioned and i'm going to call it steven i think oregon's going to win the 2024 big 10 championship they're going to win that conference i think they're going to be the one seed out of the big 10 i just think they're more talented than ohio state i think michigan's out of the way Kalen DeBoer's out of the way. I mean, this is just lining up very nicely for Dan Lanning. And and the way it's unfolding, I will not be surprised if on the way to the conference title game, whoever Dan Lanning's team is playing gets a flat tire. Like, it's just, it's working out that way. And I think Dan Lanning and the Ducks win the Big Ten championship. Now, my third fearless prediction for 2024. Now, anybody else looking over at the possibility of Oregon State and Washington State 
playing against Mountain West Conference teams and one of them getting close to the college football playoff. Anybody else thinking about it? I know Oregon State fans, Washington State fans probably thinking about it. As the Pac-2 begin to play and, uh, you know, the college football playoff unfolds, I'm left hoping and thinking that this playoff is actually going to work. It's going to be one of the few things in in sports that delivers as as uh, we expect it to deliver. I don't. I just think at 12 teams, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a great year. I agree with people who think it's going. Like, why didn't we have a 12 team tournament uh, for all those years? I think we're going to say that. But I think Oregon State and Washington State, one of those two teams, is going to flirt with a college football playoff berth. Week eight, week nine, week ten of the season. I think we're going to be seeing ESPN unveil the bracket, and I think it's going to include either the Cougars or the Beavers as one of those teams that is sort of on the fringe, on the bubble of getting into the into the twelve team tournament. That is my prediction. I want your predictions. Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. All right. I'm saying Chip Kelly stays at UCLA. I'm saying Oregon wins the Big Ten, and I'm saying either Oregon State or Washington State flirts with a playoff berth. Stephen, fearless prediction from you. Uh, yeah, I got a few. I got two college football, one NBA predictions. Number one, uh, we've all seen the love triangle between the coaching staffs at Washington, Alabama, Arizona. They all kind of swap coaches there. I think Arizona is going to have the most wins out of all of those teams. They're going to have more wins than Washington, Ooh. more wins than Alabama. I think they're set up with Brent Brennan. I really love that hire. Uh, Fafita coming back, McMillan coming back. I think that team is going to be really good. I think uh, Alabama may struggle a little bit year one. With DeBoer, I'm not quite sure Jalen Milrow fits that offense. And then I don't know what to expect with Washington. You know, Jetfish, really good coach. They got Will Rogers back out of the portal, but I think they lost a lot. I mean, a lot of guys hit that portal. I think Arizona ends up with the most wins out of those three teams. Uh, that would be my number one fearless prediction. I love that. I love the fearless predictions. Bring them. Let's go to the phone lines. Mark's in Portland. The number's uh, 417-7575 in the 503 area code. Mark? fearless prediction for 2024 i just had to call in just to my prediction is you're going to be wrong <laughs> um i don't i don't think the ducks are uh, going to win the big 10 but because of the 12 team playoff if they split against michigan and ohio state and even if they lose at wisconsin um and they don't win the conference they're going to get in that playoff and that's the biggest thing to me uh, is is uh, you want to win the conference because you know you got a shot at being a higher seed. But if 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 they have a season like they did this year, I get to see them control their own destiny in a postseason, and that's what I've dreamed about since. How I was refreshing! A kid. They've been doing How this refreshing. Football for, yeah, and uh, the other thing is, is I predict next year you're going to see the beginning of the end for the Big Twelve. Uh, I think they are going to try to go to to, to make the. SEC and the Big Ten, you know, twenty-team conferences, um, and and uh, you're gonna. I think you're gonna see some like Florida State's already talking about leaving the ACC. I think you're gonna, you know, either that or you're gonna have the Big Twelve really complaining a lot about the SEC and the Big Ten getting, you know, sixty-seven percent of the playoff teams. Yeah. So well, that'll, uh, that'll be it. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah, I want to. I, I don't know if you know Oregon State. I'm just telling you, John, if they want to make the playoff next year, they got to beat Oregon. I really believe that's that's true because it's kind of highly unlikely that they're going to run the table in any conference. That's not an easy thing to do. So if you lose one game in conference and you lose to Oregon and you win the conference, is Oregon State going to get in? 
that that's that's a question for you guys. Yeah, I, I'm kind of looking at Washington State right now. Thank you, Mark, for that. Washington State, I thought that there would be a mass defection of Washington State players jumping in the portal. It hasn't happened. And I'm kind of looking at Washington State and their schedule, and I'm going, could that 4-0 start that we saw last year turn into like a 6-0, 7-0? They do have Texas Tech, but they have them at home. And their schedule isn't particularly tough. And as we saw with the group of five teams and the playoff structure, if a Tulane or a Liberty can get into the New Year's Six Bowl picture, I do think Oregon State or Washington State can get into the 12-team playoff. They'll be right there, I think, shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with the Boise States of the world and uh, and some others. What? Steven, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, one of my other predictions I have kind of goes against what you're saying there. You think Oregon State has a chance to compete? I don't think that. I think uh, Jonathan Smith and Michigan State mm. are going to have the same record as Oregon State. They're going to have the same Ooh. amount of wins this season. How I'd, many wins is that? Uh, it's either seven or eight. Okay. And I, I could see. I could see that, but I think Washington State might do a little better. I keep looking at their schedule, and I'm going, "Gosh, if they beat Texas Tech at home, then you know you might you can make a case that they might be favored in every game." I just love I love Aiden Childs. We saw what he did at Oregon State. I think he is going to be just unleashed at Michigan State with Jonathan Smith, and you know I think Jonathan Smith is just such an unbelievable coach. Like I think he's really good, and I do have questions about Trent Bray. Like you know he's never been a head coach in these type of situations. Uh, he wasn't even the full-time DC for what over a year and a half. About that was about it. Like I, I have questions if he's going to be a good head coach. Eventually he could be. I think, but just in year one, there's going to be a learning process with Oregon State. I think Michigan State is going to have some dudes. They brought some guys over from Oregon State. They're going to be a little farther along than what we thought. Uh, so I think Jonathan Smith and Michigan State are going to have a nice, solid year one. Uh, build some momentum there. My last prediction, though, John, is the NBA. Uh, the NBA, you know, it seems like the Boston Celtics are going to run away with it. You know, they're one of the best teams in the league. Uh, my prediction in the NBA Finals, Philadelphia versus the Clippers. That, that, that's what it's going to be, and I already know it. Philadelphia and the Cl- and the Clippers in the NBA Finals. You don't like Milwaukee. You don't think uh, the Milwaukee Bucks can get there? Damian Lillard, new coach, Giannis? No, not, not with You're Doc not Rivers. Not with Doc Rivers as their head coach. Uh, nobody has done less with more in the NBA as a head coach than Doc Rivers. <laughs> Well, it's evident that the players were happy about, you know, the uh, you know, the Adrian Griffin firing. Did you see the players? I did. Warm-ups? Yeah, that was yeah. that was weird, man. I tell you what, that I don't know. That it was a weird look to have uh, a bunch of guys just out there dancing around just showing how excited they were to get. They were very excited. It was almost it was almost like when Josh McDaniel got fired with the Raiders. Like the Raiders suddenly went, "Okay, you know, the the ding-dong, you know, the the witch is dead. And uh, really interesting to see that kind of reaction from a bunch of grown-ups dancing around on the, uh, on the uh, court. Uh, later in the show, Hugh Millen will be joining us, former NFL quarterback, University of Washington quarterback. He had a kid who went to the University of Oregon, didn't really work out there. I'm going to ask him about that, uh, the parent side of things. Also, the Jetfish hire at Washington. I'll make another fearless prediction. I'll ask Hugh Millen about it, you know, what he thinks of that hire. I think Jed Fish is going to struggle in year one at Washington. I, he's, you know, he doesn't have his quarterback. I think he um, has a very small sample size. I would not be surprised that if the over-under on Washington's win total is around eight next year, I would not be surprised if that went under. 
I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be around eight and a half. That's where I think the number's going to be. We will see. Uh, coming up, we'll play Punch It Audio. We got great sound. You'll hear from the ACC commissioner, plus uh, Oregon State baseball coach Mitch Canham sounding off on realignment. And Stephen A. Smith, he says that the Bucks last night, it was a bad look. Well, you'll hear it in his words. I'll tell you what I think of it, too. Leave it here. What'd you make of Stephen A. Smith saying that Damian Lillard reached out to him and said he did not join the Milwaukee Bucks in that dance on the court before last night's game because he thought it was disrespectful? How do you think that's going to play, Stephen, with the rest of the Bucks team? I, I don't think it'll be a big deal, but I not yet, not yet. I think if Dame comes out and he keeps and he says more things about how he was sporting Adrian Griffin. Um, and he's he's not about all this, uh, you know, celebrating all this kind of stuff. I think that could eventually cause some problems. But I think just this one thing, I don't think it'll cause too much of a drama right now with the Bucks. But there are some weird thing, weird vibes over there with the Milwaukee Bucks, John. You, you know, yes. You asked in the first segment, like, I, do I believe in them? Like, no, not not even a little bit. There's just some weird stuff going on, and I don't want to blame Dame for all of it. But they seemed like they were fine last season until you mm-hmm. know they, they were the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. I know they lost in the first round, but Giannis was hurt. They don't go out and they acquire Dame for a guy like Drew Holiday, who was a leader on that team, and all of a sudden now there's some uh, there's some questions going on. And defensively, not good. And Drew Holiday was a good defensive player, and it looks to me like you know Dame's running the risk that people view this as he's the problem if Milwaukee doesn't win or comes nowhere near the playoffs. We'll keep an eye on that. Let's play some punch it audio. <laughs> We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Stephen A. Smith talking about Giannis and the Bucks dancing. Here's what he had to say. Punch it. The bottom line is this. This man went through 14 interviews before he finally got a head coaching job on his 15th try over the years. Um, this man was fired to, ver- to have the very first game after his dismissal. And y'all are acting like that. Clearly, um, you're either tone deaf, uh, which is bad in and of itself, or you really didn't care. You wanted the world to know how happy you are that he's gone. I don't see it as an either-or. I think sometimes when there's a coaching change, there's a catharsis that happens on the roster. And we've all seen those teams. It's interesting. Betters will look for those teams that have been has, have been bad all season, coaching change, the you know interim coach. It, but, but the euphoria sometimes only lasts like a week or a game. And then they kind of come back to earth. The question will be, can Doc Rivers come in and will Milwaukee be that much better of a defensive team simply by changing the head coach? And I'm fascinated to see what happens. 22nd best team in the NBA when it comes to defensive efficiency. I suspect, Stephen, they get a little better. Maybe they're like 19th or 20th. But I just think... When you don't have Drew Holiday and you got Damian Lillard on this team, great offensive player who doesn't have 
all that much interest in playing defense, I think you're limited in what you can do defensively. Yeah, and Brooke Lopez last season was one of the top defenders in all the NBA, almost one defensive player of the year. And the way that Boonholzer ran their defense, he was just dropping every single time and protecting the rim. And then you had Giannis playing defense out there, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, all long defenders, where this year Adrian Griffin was having Lopez you know, blitz the screen a lot and getting out outside the three-point line. We'll see what Doc Rivers does. Maybe he reverts back to last season where he just kind of goes back to that defense that was solid and really good, number two in the, in the NBA. We'll see if they revert back to last year or they kind of you know try some new things. But I'm with you. I, I just think it's too late in the season to say, hey, Doc, turn this all around. Go, go forward and win us a championship. Did you have a big problem with the dancing before the game? Like, I just, I get it. Like, you, maybe you're just trying to get pumped up for the game, but it was a really bad look. I thought it was immature, and and but I think you have judgment and maturity issues sometimes in professional sports, and you've got young people playing games and not thinking about Adrian Griffin's feelings, not thinking about the the perception from the outside in. The the I think the roster runs the risk if they don't play extremely well, that they run the risk of everybody kind of turning on them very quickly. And I and I think you're right. You picked up on some weird vibes. But let me ask you this, like, you talk about defensive teams, like, I always, you know, I'd look at the Blazers when the Terry Stotts era, and I mostly thought, gosh, it's really hard to be a good defensive team when your backcourt is undersized. And I look at Drew Holiday, that guy was a really good defender that they lost. And if you even take Damian Lillard out of the equation, let's say they just lost Drew Holiday, he's out for the year. They're not a better team without him on the court. Like, I think that's that's kind of the missing piece, but let's see what happens. Giannis talking about the fact that he was caught by surprise when it comes to the firing of Adrian Griffin. Do you believe him? Listen. No, I think he caught me by surprise. Um, I've been here 11 years. This has happened one time before. Um, and I think the time that that happened wasn't doing real well. Um, we were, we were 30, you know, 13, 13. But again, like trust, like I, I gotta trust the front office. I gotta trust the ownership group um, that they can see the bigger picture. My job is to be the best version of myself to lead the um, this team out there uh, and help win games. And their job is to you know create the best team uh, possible and the best atmosphere around the team possible. I don't believe him. I don't believe that he didn't see it coming. But isn't it a must-lie situation? <laughs> he can't come out and be like, yeah, I wanted to have gone. But can he come out and say, I talked to the front office, they consulted with me, or, you know, I, I, don't, know if it's a, I don't know if there's ever a must-lie situation. I think there's a way for him to kind of answer that. He wasn't caught off guard by that. There's no way that the Milwaukee Bucks didn't go to their MVP and go, hey, we're going to move on the coach. We don't think he's getting it done. You know, if he objected, Adrian Griffin's still there. You're 100 percent right with that. I just, I, I don't know what, like, I don't know what to expect him to say. Like, I can't see him saying, "Yeah, you know, we we had conversations," and I, you know, I wasn't all afford or against it. I don't know. I just, I think he's caught in a tough spot right there. Mitch Canham, Oregon State baseball coach, talking about realignment. The Beavers likely to play as an independent in baseball. Here's Mitch Cannon punching. It's not going to stop our growth. It's not going to stop our competitive nature. It's not going to stop the way we recruit and the type of people that we bring in here. 
So it really hasn't been a big worry or thought in, in my mind. Um, I wake up every day and I put on orange and black. Um, and it's what I, you know, it's what my family does. Look at my, my kiddo's wardrobe. Look at my wife's wardrobe. You know, my daughter, <laughs> she told me she didn't like my eyes because they were green. Like, she's, she's a diehard bee, but they're hazel, you know? It's, um, it's just, it's, it's, it's in the family. And so, like, every day, it's, if there's anything that's uh, attempting to make us stress out, you know, it, it's just a challenge for us to, an opportunity to take it on and say, we're not worried about it. I'm really excited to see what happens with Oregon State baseball, in part because they're number seven in the preseason rankings. They've got high draft picks, including a player who could go number one overall. Great lineup. They've got all the pitching you need. But right now, nobody knows for sure what they're going to do and where they will play moving forward. And I think if you are an Oregon State fan, it does cause you a little bit of, little bit of concern. And, you know, you have, uh, you have the Beavers talking about, you know, the, the Mountain West or WCC doesn't really work for them. Can they play as an independent? Can they be independent, independent forever? Can they put together a season schedule? We're going to find all that stuff out. I know Washington State, and when I talk to Washington State about this equation, Washington State says, hey, Oregon State's a different animal when it comes to baseball. And I think it's really interesting that the athletic director at Washington State and the Washington State staff sort of look over at Oregon State go and go, hey, we're the same in a lot of ways, but not in baseball. Mitch Canham, excited to see what he does. Goss Stadium will be rocking, of course, this season. I think Oregon State's going to have a really good year. Kyle Shanahan, 49ers coach. He's got a home game, NFC title game on Sunday. 3.30 is the kickoff. Shanahan saying the 12th man will matter. Punch it. Is the 12th man, how important is the 12th man We don't call him the 12th man here. Um, <laughs> but, but our crowd's very important. Our crowd is, our crowd I think is the best in football. They travel extremely well. They don't have to travel this week. I hear the Lions fans travel pretty well. Um, I mean, we love having a home field advantage. Our defense more than anything. Our players coming out of the tunnel. Um, we want to win it here. It's... It's a huge deal. It affects everybody, and I think always in sports. I mean, everyone likes playing at home, but in football, uh, when it's loud, that truly is an advantage. I mean, that truly messes up what one side of the ball can do. He's spitting truth there. It is a disruptive factor. Levi Stadium, not known as one of those deafening, loud places. I'll be curious to see if that home crowd can be a factor. I think the bigger factor for the 49ers is, is you know, is Brock Purdy on? Can Debo Samuel be any kind of factor in the game? Can uh, George Kittle and Christian McCaffrey make life hell for the Lions? I think those kinds of things are bigger factors. Adam Schefter talking about Jim Harbaugh leaving Michigan. Leaves a big vacancy in Ann Arbor. Great for Justin Herbert, though. Punch it. Michigan had an offer on the table to make him the highest paid coach in college football. And Michigan, though, could not offer him the chance to win a Super Bowl. Mm. And really, that's ultimately it. He would have loved to have stayed at Michigan. Michigan would have loved to have had him. But the fact of the matter is, the Chargers give him the ability to compete for a Super Bowl. And I think that Jim Harbaugh clearly was interested in L.A. He was interested in Atlanta. 
but the first visit was to Los Angeles, to the Chargers. And because of that, that gave them, I believe, an advantage. Not only that, come on, Adam, come on, Schefter. It, it's Justin Herbert. It, an NFL coach is not going to be like, well, it's not like a high school kid said, oh, they recruited me first. No, Jim Harbaugh meets with the Chargers, hears what he likes, knows they have Justin Herbert. That's a match made in heaven. I'm going to ask Hugh Millen about that coming up, former NFL quarterback. How does the Harbaugh-Herbert thing work? For me, I'm looking at Herbert's college career. Mark Helfrich, desperate, throws a true freshman into a game, gets fired. Willie Taggart, desperate to win because he wants to go to Florida State. Leans heavily into Herbert. Leaves. Ditches out. Mario Cristobal takes that offense and, I don't know, essentially puts it in a straitjacket and uh, rides uh, Justin Herbert for, for all he's got. Three coaches in four college seasons for Herbert. Three coaches since 2020 in the NFL for Herbert. Six coaches since 2016. Think about the turnover, the turmoil, the changes of coordinator and system. I think this is great for Justin Herbert, but let's make no mistake. This is also really good for Jim Harbaugh. He doesn't take the Chargers job, I don't think, unless he knows that Justin Herbert's going to be there. Daniel Jeremiah on the NFL talks about the Harbaugh factor in Los Angeles. Punch it. With Jim, there's some knowns. Like He is going to have a physical, tough football team. Um, they are going to be uh, with a lot of enthusiasm. There's going to be a lot of energy and a lot of excitement and a lot of buzz that he's going to bring. And he's going to win. He's done it. He's done those three things everywhere that he's gone. And, um, you know, people, I saw, I was laughing when I saw, you know, a bunch of articles about the salary cap. And, you know, Jim Harbaugh none of doesn't know what he's inheriting there. Like, they have $35 million or whatever the number is over the salary cap. I'm like, he went to Stanford. He went to Stanford <laughs> when USC was at the top of the mountain. Stanford was a laughingstock. I was scouting during those years. I went in and looked at what they had. I knew how hard it was to get players in there. And I thought, this dude is nuts. He thinks he can win here, and he beat USC year one. Um, so that, that I, I, I don't think the obstacles are, are too great. I think Harbaugh is going to be a success, like he's always been a success. And I think it'll be a first for Justin Herbert as he gets some stability. Big win for the former Oregon quarterback. Dan Patrick talking with Kalen DeBoer. Was he ever contacted by Michigan? punch it did you hear or your people hear from michigan prior to you taking this job did michigan ever reach out to you about the possibility of replacing uh jim harbaugh no no this was this was all about alabama here and it, oh, it no, this is prior to you taking that that uh, i know michigan oh. had a wish list there of in case jim w- was actually going to go back to the nfl so I've, I've and your name was on that from what i was told so i was curious if they ever reached out to you prior to you taking Alabama. Yeah, no, that would never have been uh, anything that I've been made aware of. I think, you know, when you think about the timeline of how quickly things happen from a a national championship game and, you know, two days later, Coach Saban uh, retiring and the next day uh, an interview and then hired him. There just wasn't a lot of time for anything. So, uh, you know, um, it's been a whirlwind and uh, excited to be the head coach at Alabama. 
I spoke with Greg Byrne, the Alabama athletic director, this week. I asked him about that hire, and he said literally he went in and he talked to his Alabama players and said, give me 72 hours before you jump in the portal, before you make any decisions. Give me 72 hours to to figure this out and let you see who the coach is going to be. And the players, for the most part, did that at Alabama, and he produced Kalen DeBoer as the hire. I Now I'm looking at Michigan, and I don't know if we've seen anything definitive about what Michigan wants to do, but I don't know if we need to because my hunch on Michigan, with Harbaugh out of the way, is that Sharon Moore, the assistant coach there, is going to get it. Like I don't, I don't think Brian Kelly is the right coach, nor do I think he would, would he take it or be using it for anything more than leverage. I just think Sharon Moore is the guy, and I think that's why when other jobs opened up, Moore was kind of sitting tight, and not doing a bunch of interviews. And I, I think if Michigan wants to retain players, they go with Moore. They go with the in-house candidate. It's all about retention now. You got forty-eight to seventy-two hours to hire your coach or your or your host. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Marketing is important. It is. Sports teams market themselves, come up with slogans, come up with campaigns for the season, mottos, um, you know, win the day at Oregon, um, and other things. But uh, in business, yeah, of course, you see products that have marketing all the time. Um, And uh, I was reading a story about Coca-Cola and... Apparently, Coca-Cola, which you know is a company that his whose history stretches more than a hundred years, Coca-Cola figured out pretty early on that there were lulls in the seasonal consumption of its product. Coca-Cola knew, for example, Stephen, which which season do you think Coca-Cola recognized people naturally gravitated towards the product, bought it, drank it? Uh, summertime, hundred percent. And as it got colder, and in regions where it was colder, Coca-Cola didn't do as well. And they figured that out pretty early. And so in uh, marketing campaigns, even stretching back 50 or 75 years, Coca-Cola made a heavy push towards Christmas marketing and aligning itself with Santa Claus and the Christmas season. And now you can even see in your mind right now as I say that. What do you see right now as I say that? You see Santa Claus holding a Coca-Cola. Or one of the campaigns from the 80s or 90s that had, you know, Jolly St. Nick coming down the chimney and uh, enjoying a Coca-Cola in the living room that was left behind for him. Um, I just think it's interesting that that kind of marketing has pivoted into sports, and it makes sense. And the team experiences at the stadium, the team brands, all of that. But I kind of want to... I want to use you, Stephen, a little bit as a guinea pig. Do you mind? I don't mind. No, that sounds like fun. Okay. <laughs> so get on the hamster wheel. No, I uh, I want to ask you, when when you think about the University of Oregon, what kind of words come to mind? What kind of, what's their brand? What's Oregon's brand? What are they about? What What do you see when I say University of Oregon football or University of Oregon athletic department? Uh, I think flash. I think innovation. I think jerseys. Um, I just I kind of think of just the Northwest. I think Northwest as well. Okay, I I see it too. I see um cutting edge innovation. I see um I see pizzazz and flash. I see Nike 
and um, Nike's got a brand. Oregon's got a brand. Um, I, 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 I bring up the Coca-Cola example because it's clear that marketing works, right? You know, even on this radio show, we've got longtime advertisers uh, who advertise on the station, first call heating and cooling, shoe mill shoe stores, Gresham Ford, high caliber mill rights. Um, you know, it, you have all these advertisers who gravitate towards the show because they know that there's influence and power and branding and marketing. And, and, uh, and I love all those advertisers, especially those who have been with us for 10 or 15 years, right? Like it's, it's just wild to me and the relationships that we've created and, and, um, and the brands, but it works. Marketing works. And so you bring up Oregon. That's great. It works. So let me ask you this, Stephen. What's the Trailblazers brand? Um, injuries, failure, <laughs> n- not very good, like not a serious franchise. That, that's about it. That's a problem, not, isn't it? Not drafting Michael Jordan. It's a problem. And, and I don't even think injuries, not being a good franchise is really even a brand. But it's a problem that even if I bring that up, I think people are going to go, you know what? They don't have a brand. They have a logo. They might have a slogan season to season. They might have a player here or there. But I don't think the Blazers have a brand. And I think that is a problem for the Blazers organization when it comes to marketing the team, when it comes to attracting free agents, when it comes to, uh, you know, sort of aligning itself with other brands. What is the Blazers brand? What should the brand be? It should be we're resilient, we're innovative, we're fun. The 49ers went out as they were drafting George Kittle, Debo Samuel, even Brock Purdy. They had a list of criteria over these characteristics are going to be players who represent the 49er way. Jed Lynch, he had met with a professor at Stanford who said, all right, figure out what you want to be as a brand. Now go out and align yourself and become that brand by drafting players who fit sort of the description of what you just said. And the 49ers drafted guys who had high football IQ, who had a love for the game, who looked like they were enjoying themselves, having fun on the field, and lo and behold, the 49ers look like they are enjoying themselves on the field and having fun. They have a definite brand about them, and you'll see it on display on Sunday. And the Oregon Ducks have a brand. I would, I think Oregon State has a brand. What's Oregon State's brand when you think about them? Uh, Blue-collar, tough, resilient, I think would be a good one for Oregon State. Yeah, you you don't want to be the little engine that could. You don't want to fall into that cliche if you're Oregon State. It's really easy to do that. Oh, we're have-nots, we're the little engine that could. You don't want to do that, but you want to be, hey, we're tough, we're resilient, we have metal. Overlooked um, would be another one. Yeah, we uh, look past us at your own risk, that that kind of thing. Like, we're dangerous, but you know, but tough. Like, I, I think that's the brand you want to have if you're Oregon State. But the Blazers do not have a brand, and it isn't about – the fact that, you know, Scoot Henderson's not ready or Anthony Simons isn't Damian Lillard or the fact that, you know, Chauncey Billups is not the coach that Terry Stotts or even Nate McMillan or Maurice Cheeks was. Maybe he's more like Maurice Cheeks. Some similarities there. But I think I think that the Blazers lack brand. I don't think they know what they want to be and, and what they are. And so, therefore, they are kind of this murky amalgam of nothing. And I think it's a problem. Let's go to the phone lines. Mike's in Eugene. He wants to talk about Jim Harbaugh. Mike, what's up, man? Hey. Um, hey, guys. They got the best coach possible to get Herbert to the next level. And 
really all you have to do is take a look at what he did for your Niners, obviously. But I think they will be very steady. They will build a serious running game. And all of Harbaugh's teams, when you really look at them, that's what they're built on is running the football. And that works in the NFL. Uh, right now, I think Herbert has a feeling, especially with uh, that coach who is constantly gambling on fourth down when he usually shouldn't have, that he had to carry the cross all alone, and that's the genius of Harbaugh's teams. Uh, I'm a longtime duck. I was not surprised at all that they finally won at Michigan. I was surprised it took a little bit longer, but that guy is a winner. Stanford, San Diego, San Francisco, Michigan. It will not be different at San Diego, and I'll bet you they win that division. Uh, I mean, they could win it next year, definitely within two years. So, um, And I think the Lions are going to punch harder than you think with the Niners, unless the Niners play a lot cleaner. They were really fortunate to win last weekend, and I want them to win, but those are my two things, buddy. Yep. Uh, I appreciate it. You guys have a yep. good one. Thanks. All right. I appreciate it. Look, I, we'll talk more about the NFL playoff games in the next hour, but you're going to hear from Hugh Millen, former NFL quarterback, former Husky. We uh, have a talk about his kid at Oregon. Uh, we'll talk about Jed Fish to Washington, Kalen DeBoer to Alabama. How does it all work out? Hugh Millen, former NFL quarterback in Washington Husky, is coming up next. Uh, Steven, I, I, I expect Detroit to show up to play. I think the Niners, um, if they don't, if they weren't awakened last week, there's no awakening them. Um, they came per- perilously close to being eliminated from the playoffs by the Packers. Did not play well. I expect a better effort and a cleaner effort from the 49ers. But let's see what happens. The Bald Face Truth, hour one in the books, hour two ahead. Hugh Millen, next. Hugh Millen guy who grew up in the Seattle area, went to college at Washington, uh, third-round pick in the NFL draft, played uh, with a bunch of NFL teams. I could list them all, but I, uh, Hugh Millen, I'd, I'd rather just have you talk about your expertise. Like, Give me an idea. What has it been like in Seattle with Kalen DeBoer leaving and Jed Fish coming in? What's that been like? Well, it's been a real shock. I mean, when you consider... Uh, the, here the Huskies were uh, you know, in, in, in the national title game, obviously, and and felt like there might be, despite the underdog status, a, a legitimate opportunity to win that. And then all of a sudden the bottom falls out on that. And then next thing, Kalen DeBoer is gone. It was a real, uh, you know, punch in the gut and then a kick in the groin uh, back to back. And and so it, very difficult. I think a lot of Husky fans are, are understanding that it's Alabama, that Washington is not the mecca of the college football world and I think are a little bit more reasoned in it. I think there's a lot of fans that are very emotional, and it's kind of like uh, to hell with Kalen DeBoer, um, screw him, and, and that type of thing, and, and it, it's kind of an emotional response. But, but certainly for a large part of the fan base, uh, emotions are raw. Yeah, DeBoer, you know, he goes to Alabama, and I, I think Nick Saban probably looks at NIL and says, you know, this this world and this job isn't what it used to be, but... Does does Kalen win wherever he goes? I mean, he has, that's what he's done his whole career. Does he win at Alabama? Do, do the do the Tide fans end up thinking he's the second coming to Nick Saban? Here's what I think is going to happen. Now, I am not among the Husky fans rooting against K- 
Kalen DeBoer. I, I, that's two negatives. I'm rooting for Kalen DeBoer at Alabama because I think he's a good human being and a good coach. But I'm I'm very skeptical about what's going to happen for the following reason. You have Nick Saban was at Alabama for 17 years. He played in nine championship games, either BCS or college football playoffs. That's obviously greater than one every two years. He won six. That's obviously greater than one every three years. So now you've got the portal and everything changes. I mean, the 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 depth that he had, the special teams that he had, the fact that, that all the players that could have been on other teams trying to beat him were actually on his bench because uh, he just kind of corralled everybody. I think everything changed. You know, he could be a real – red ass type of a uh, a coach as as these guys come in as a freshman it's a big splash of, of cold water in their face and they probably felt like they wanted to quit but in the old days they couldn't and they tough it out and then the grit made them better players a year or two later now if they don't like what transpires after their freshman year they can just get up and go and so i would submit to you this john that if alabama had a magic closet and 72-year-old Nick Saban could walk into that closet, close the door, poof, out walks 55-year-old Nick Saban with all that energy, but he's now in 2024. There's no way he's duplicating what he did at Alabama in those 17 years because of these reasons. And so I don't think a young Saban could do it. I don't think a young Bear Bryant could do it. I don't think that Kalen DeBoer could do it, but I, what I would anticipate is that the Alabama fans won't think it through that way. I think they'll get emotional as well, and I think they'll get edgy about losing their edge. And I think they'll say, wait a minute, we can't have a, a new crop of, of recruits coming in that can't remember Alabama's dominance. Heck, these guys were in middle school, and they'll, they'll, get, they'll get hasty, and I, I got a feeling that, it's it's an almost impossible task for Kalen DeBoer. Yeah, I think uh, it's you're Frank Sinatra Jr., right? You're you're following Nick Saban, and then the stage and the lighting has changed, and uh, you know the the world, the industry has changed around you. Hugh Millen is our guest, uh, former NFL quarterback, former Washington quarterback. Um, you've been through this both. You know, you're an analyst now on KJR in Seattle, but you know you've been through it as a player, where you have bounced around and been at different programs, different franchises you you've watched your kids your own kids uh navigate transfer portal and the shifting dynamic in college sports kale and clay your uh, quarterback kids like give me an idea what that's been like for you as a as a parent well I, you know i think you go in as a parent and, and you, you kind of have uh, hopes and dreams along with the kids and and then you know my uh, oldest kid went to oregon and had uh, sur- surgery on his shoulder took three inches out of his collarbone on his throwing shoulder and and things were never really the same so so that kind of uh out of my youngest son uh was at colorado state started as a redshirt freshman and and did some good things set an ncaa for completion percentage um uh and actually edged out bo nicks that year so he led the nation in completion percentage and, and also led the nation in completion percentage on on passes over 20 yards uh from the line of scrimmage so it wasn't just dink and dunk but then, you know, uh, things went awry, and the first game got hurt and never got his job back. So, so now he's at Florida uh, on a full ride. So, you know, I, I never wanted to be, you know, that family, that dad, those kids um, bouncing around. But it's a new, uh, 
it's a new uh, age. And I will just say this. I think a lot of old-time fans, they kind of decry the modern player. Oh, well, he, he doesn't have loyalty. He doesn't have grit. I will submit to you this. When I played at Washington and I came in, um, I knew the path to the field. I had to beat out Chris Chandler, who they didn't have stars back then, but he's a parade All-American, and he, was, he had the equivalent of, a, of five stars. I knew that all I had to focus on is I got to beat out Chris Chandler and I was going to follow Steve Pelour as the Pac-10 player of the year and what have you. My focus was on only the Washington quarterbacks on the roster at that time and anybody incoming Washington. Don James also, he could, he, there was no portal for him. He had to tell his staff, listen, we better identify and, and target and recruit and land and develop these quarterbacks because on average – we're going to have to start with a new guy every other year, every other year. And so uh, so the, the, the coaches couldn't dip into the portal. So all the reps that my son was promised by Mario Cristobal, they, they then went to, uh, to, you know, they said, hey, hey, uh, after Justin uh, Herbert goes to the NFL, you know, you'll compete uh, with Tyler Shuck and, and any income freshman. They didn't mention – they're going to go bring somebody in the portal. Well, next scene is is now you've got um, uh, Herbert, of course, goes to the NFL, and Anthony Brown comes in, what, he had 45 starts or something in the ACC? They don't, they don't tell you that when you're recruiting. So I, I think let's just if, – if you want to condemn the system, you want to hate the player – uh, you know, and not the game, at least apply it consistently because while the players may have changed – so have the coaches, and they are dabbling in in the uh, in the portal. And and I'll I'll just close with the thought with with this analogy. You remember you remember Rambo? The first Rambo movie was First Blood, and there's that famous line where Rambo says, "No, they drew First Blood." Well, who drew First Blood in the in the portal? It wasn't my kid. It was the Duck coaching staff going to get a guy in the portal, and then the response thereafter was, "All the reps you promised me in the recruiting trail." went to somebody in the portal so it was the coaches and so often not just in my kid just think about across the country across across the uh, the coast up and down so oftentimes it's the the coaches that are they are drawing first blood in the portal to carry out the announcement yeah and i think it's really hard because you have coaches who preach loyalty and then look at the college football playoff you know the three of the four teams that participated in the playoff don't have their head coaches they're not around and now you have players going, wait, what? My coach is leaving. And then you have other cases like you mentioned there where, you know, your kid gets promised playing time or reps or an opportunity. And then they look up and the calculus has changed all of a sudden. It's, I mean, it's got to be a really bad feeling. I can't imagine, you know, for players who are amid that and, you know, Oregon quarterbacks, it seems like Oregon just wants to go to the portal every year, you. And now just bring in a, you know, a guy who's 25 years old every year. And I get it that you got an older quarterback in there. What do you make of that philosophy? Like development of a quarterback versus just jumping in the portal and taking somebody else's guy. Well, the one thing I'll say, John, in there, and I agree with that thing. I, I, I do need to pause. I, I, I don't think often they they promise you playing time. I think now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Uh, my kids were never uh, promised playing time on the field, uh, but they are promised reps in practice. Uh, which are, which are, you know, yeah. you know, that's the, that's the path to the field. So I, I do want to make that distinction. Uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, I, I think it's very, 
uh, alarming and the uh, the loyalty, as you said. I mean, take Ty Thompson. Is he not regarded as the highest quarterback recruit in the history of Oregon football? I mean, uh, and then he just be, keeps being supplanted by guys that that uh, that have the experience. I mean, I, it was a little bit um, of an eye opener for me. When at Northwestern, you got the uh, uh, Pat Fitzgerald. Pat Fitzgerald was the head of the AFC, and and he sat there and he promises, "Hey, we don't take transfers." And then if you look at the re- the history, this guy is one of the most straight up guys that that I've ever encountered, in le- at least in terms of of uh, initial impressions. And and he went three straight years going to get, as you just said, veterans in the portal, and uh, and and then. It's the younger quarterbacks that are holding the bag and say, well, we can't go with you because you don't have an experience. Well, I don't have any experience because you keep, you keep trumping me with guys that are experienced. So, so I would think that the fallout's going to be that you're going to get a lesser caliber of quarterback from the high school ranks if you get a reputation as, as a school that just, you know, they, they, they just want to have experienced guys. Well, you're just not going to get an elite caliber quarterback coming out of high school now maybe that doesn't matter to guys anymore but i think that's going to be one of the uh, inevitable consequences hugh millen with us uh, you can catch him as an analyst on kjr's coverage uh, former nfl quarterback and former washington quarterback as well jed fish uh he uh takes over at washington small sample size concerns me hugh um i think he's a smart offensive guy but I'm a little leery that he's going to be able to step in there and have the success he had at Arizona, uh, certainly right away, and certainly with the transition to the Big Ten. Well, I went through a few coaching changes in my my career in the NFL, and here's a, a, a potential concern here. Kalen DeBoer, uh, he leaves, and now if you compare what Jed Fish arrived at at Arizona, that was after the COVID year that, the uh, the Wildcats had gone zero and five. They lost the, to Arizona State the last game in Kevin Sumlin's career there, seventy to seven. So now, what's the climate that Fish enters? He's got a a, a player base that that a had played kind of like a, a big sky team, not even a Mountain West team. They were dreadful, right? And so they're just thirsting, like like in the desert. Uh, coincidentally, in in the desert, thirsting for. For a win, well, in comes Fish. Doesn't matter how abrasive he is or what kind of discipline he instills. These guys just want to win. Well, now you have a guy in Kalen DeBoer, universally and uh, uh, just beloved by those players at Washington. Had that rare ability to to be. Uh, I wouldn't call him a player's coach because I think that could be a pejorative in some people's mind. But I think that he had a way of connecting with the players, yet still having the discipline. He was respected for his knowledge. Uh, the staff, there was a, a respect level. And now Jed Fish comes in here, and it's like like the players are thinking, even possibly subconsciously, hey, dude, this stuff ain't broken. We were 14-1. and one. What do you mean you need to put a new stamp on? I mean, and, and, and so I think it could be difficult when they see a contrast in styles. And I think it, even, as I said, just psychologically, it's a tougher uh, transition. Um, and so Fish, look, he's a, he's a bright guy, works hard. Um, even his detractors will concede that. So he may figure this out, but, but don't kid yourself. The, it's a 180-degree degree different environment at Washington 
than than the one he overtook at Arizona. Uh, Hugh, before I cut you loose, uh, Justin Herbert is getting Jim Harbaugh as his new head coach, and I'm, I was thinking about this. It's now, you know, since he was a freshman at Oregon, six head coaches that he's had, three at three in college, now three in the NFL. You've played at both levels. Uh, you know, what does that do to a young QB who's trying to make his way or a quarterback who's trying to make his way? And it, will Harbaugh and Herbert be a success? Well, first of all, I could not uh, speak more glowingly about Justin Herbert. I mean, he took my son under his wing. They they would watch tape together just one-on-one. Uh, from time to time, he would say, hey, today we're not um, I'm watching football tape. We're going to the library and we're going to study together. Incredible mentor, uh, incredibly selfless human being. Uh, everything you think you might think that's good in him is genuine and authentic. Uh, my kid roomed with his uh, with Patrick Herbert, Justin's younger brother. So, so because he's, they were friends, he was constantly at the Herbert house for Monday night football or Thanksgiving dinner and what have you. So, so I, I just cannot uh, bark enough about um, uh, about Justin Herbert, the person. He's very bright guy, as you know. He won the academic Heisman. He can handle the load of these new offenses. I think the stability with Harbaugh, Harbaugh brings incredible uh, uh, credibility into that locker, into that Charger locker, uh, because it's not just that he won the national title. And I was with the Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys, when Jimmy, Jumps, Jump, Jimmy Johnson had won the, the uh, national title. And so if you, if you achieve enough at the highest level in college, you still get that respect, in my opinion, in an NFL locker. I think the Chargers will have that. And, of course, they'll know um, the success he had in the NFL as well, uh, unlike the Jimmy Johnson analogy I just referenced. So, so I think everything, the table is set for success. This is a guy in Harbaugh that's never lost. Just look up the University of San Diego, what they did for 25 years before Harbaugh got there and what, what Stanford was before they got there with Buddy Tevens and Walt Harris and all these guys. Like He has, he has taken – moribund franchises and programs they always turn on it always wins and so i'm i I couldn't be more delighted for justin herbert i think it's going to win uh harbaugh's quirky there's no question um (laughs) but uh quirky quirky in 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 a way that just produces um w's and championships so uh, i'm delighted for justin i hope it works out the way i think it will yeah i keep thinking too like you know he went through this in college now he's had three coaches in the nfl for some QBs, that might be shock to them if they had one guy in college, but Herbert's lived this. I mean, he went from Helfrich to Taggart to Cristobal. Cristobal had that offense in a straight jacket, as you know. And, yes, uh, he, yes, he did. Yeah, and now... That's, in a, the, good, that's, a, good, that's a good description. Oh, good Lord, he wanted to run on first down, run on second down, run on third down if he could. If not, Justin, complete that third and eight and get us the first down, and then we'll start over. Exactly. You know? Well, and even if you look at the passing numbers, so many of those... what. What became passes were RPOs. They were called run plays with just a quick slant or a, a bubble screen attached to it. So his passing numbers really don't reflect how many times did they just call a drop back or a play action on first down. Uh, in my opinion, not nearly enough. I think it was hard to play quarterback for the Ducks back then. He was a great one, and I, I'm not sure they'd realize their their potential in, in with that system. Hugh Millen, you're the best. I appreciate you joining us. I'd love to get you back on. You know, as uh, the summer and spring happen, and uh, and and draw on your expertise. Anytime, Johnny. I always enjoy our visits. Take right. care now. Thanks, you. Appreciate you, man. Okay, you bet. There you have it, Duck fan. 
Hugh Millen, fantastic interview with uh, a Washington legend and a guy that uh, played in the NFL at a high level. Certainly, uh, for those of you who know him and know his college career, love having him on. All right, leave it here. Still ahead, 5 o'clock. Anna will have the 5 at 5. You got the bald-faced truth on the BFT Radio Network. Good stuff from Hugh Millen. Is he a little salty, Stephen? Yeah, you could say a little salty. Uh, maybe a lot salty <laughs> with how things he's, went. He's outspoken, though. I like him. Uh, I have always liked you. He will call me once in a while, and uh, and I said to him, "You want to come on the show?" And he was like, "Yeah," because he was venting a little bit about you know coaching and how how you know everybody gets on the players for getting in the portal, and he's right. He was right. It's not just the players. The coaches um, were in the portal before players. Like we remember that, right? Like coaches used to jump around. It's part of the reason why the portal became a thing. And coaches used to jump around, and they would recruit players, and then players were stuck playing for the school and having to stay at the school. It's going to blow people's minds someday. Can you imagine, Stephen? Like you're going to like your kids are going to be talking someday, and you're going to be like, "Well, you you didn't always have the option. It used to be when you committed to a school, if you transferred, you had to sit out a year." Well, that's that's how it was at the start of the year when the Ducks played. Uh, Texas Tech and Tyler Shuck, me and Judah were looking to be like, how many former Ducks have the Ducks actually played against? And like we couldn't, we couldn't find a lot of Ducks that had transferred and then faced off against Oregon later on in their career. Where now that's going to be the norm in a lot of situations. It's like club sports in a way, right? Like you know, kids will jump around, play for different clubs, um, have different experiences. We've talked about that the other day. I don't want to, I don't want to spend like a lot of time bagging on club sports because I think there are a lot of good people who are out there coaching kids and working with kids and you know our our nine-year-old is picking up some basketball and she's getting training sessions that's great she's feeling good about it but there are some adults who have exploited the club system to their benefit turned it into a job turned it into a cottage industry when you talk about the industry that is youth sports, it blows my mind. Um, when you talk about youth sports as an industry, uh, the scope of it is like when you try to wrap your head around it, like the 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 market for youth sports in our country, they're saying it's twenty, it's thirty-seven billion dollars is spent on youth sports. By 2030, in the United States, they are estimating that that number will be almost $70 billion. $70 billion. Now, how big a business is it? Well, 60 million kids participate in youth sports. And you talk about, it, you know, people, people thought, oh, this, you know, youth sports, it's for the good of the kids. It's for the betterment of children. And it's true. This was... Um, just a couple of years ago, a $19 billion industry. Now it's $37 billion, projected to go to $70 billion, and then uh, by 2030, more than $70 billion. And so even when you talk about organized, I'm talking about U.S., United States, organized sports for children and teenagers. Like the NFL is a... 15 to 18 billion dollar enterprise youth sports will be a 70 billion dollar enterprise by 2030 so 
the adults out there who have honed in on that, they're not dumb. They've figured out there's business, there's money to be made, and that's fine. I'm okay with people um, you know, being paid for their time. Like, who could be against that? Their time and their expertise. But studies show that the average family spends $1,400 a year on sports activities per kid. And I'm going to guess there are some parents listening to the show who go, that's all? Because they're spending more. And, you know, we're talking about, like, there are a lot of benefits to sports. Get your kid away from the screen. Get them out on a field. Kids who play sports, um, uh, you know, have better behavior, better school grades, uh, are less likely uh, to uh, be in unwanted uh, pregnancies and and in trouble with the with the law or behavior and so there's a lot of good things that come out of sports but there are some bad things that come out of it and overuse and some coaches out there that you know are trying to wring every dollar they can out of every kid that they can find that's part of it now i would also argue that there's there's benefit to the local economy because i've seen it these teams are traveling which means hotels and restaurants um hotel and city taxes you know airline fees uh, you know, we're talking about these sports complexes that host tournaments that bring people from all over. There's a lot of profit to be made. And I guess maybe I'm asking too much to say, hey, can we do it within reason? I think maybe I'm a little Pollyanna. As I start to think about this, I start thinking like, hey, the NFL is worth like 15 or 20 billion. Youth sports as an industry, 30 billion going to 70 billion by 2030 think wrap your head around that this is bigger than the nfl steven why are we not talking about this more i don't know man it's uh it's real gross when you put it that way because it it is true it it shouldn't be it shouldn't be this big of business right like i understand i'm with you like people need to be paid for what they do and uh they need to be paid okay to do it like referees and coaches and all this stuff but man bigger than the nfl just for kids it's just it seems like a lot of exploitation in my mind it's a numbers game i mean you know 50 50 more than 50 percent of kids age 6 to 17 and it's never going to stop too there's always going to be kids that are going to be into sports so it's a model that will never go away what's changed is the exploitation of it and the year round and the club emphasis and the specialization part because i can remember like i played everything and 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 if i could go back I probably did too much. Okay, I played every sport. I played 11 or 12 different sports. I know you don't think 11 or 12 sports exist, but I'm here to tell you they do. In my middle school, I played football. I played baseball. I ran cross country. I played soccer. I wrestled. I played on the basketball team. I, I'm forgetting sports that I participated in. I did it all. And I was at school from about 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day. Sometimes I would go to cross-country practice, and then I would go to wrestling practice. Uh, you know, I'd go, to, I'd go to basketball, and then I'd go to wrestling. It was like I was just all over the place because I just wanted to soak up as much as I could, and I loved it. I just loved it. And, I, and there were a lot of coaches who poured time, effort, and energy into me. And you know what? I think they made like 12 cents an hour because I don't think they were getting paid. I think they were just PE coaches who would stay late and they would coach the soccer team or they would stay late and they would coach the cross-country team or the track team, and I did it all. And I was that kid. 
And I look back now and I go, eh, maybe some of the uh, overuse uh, of my knee, my three knee surgeries had to do with the fact that I never stopped playing a sport. But I also am grateful for all those people who coached those teams and probably didn't get paid. And I'm also grateful that I didn't sort of grow up in an, at a time when everything costs so much because I, I don't remember there being any cost. If there was, it was nominal to be part of a team and so or maybe you had to buy your cleats uh but i know now that the costs are prohibitive and i know now that once the adults get their hooks into you they're going to tell you you have to specialize now i got a story to tell that i think is kind of uh reflective of like when the pivot happened i got to high school and jeff garcia who goes on to quarterback in the nfl is a year older than me in high school. And we had grown up together. I knew him. We'd play on the same youth soccer teams. We'd play on the youth little league teams. Um, I'd spent the night at his house. Uh, His mother and my mother are friends. There's friends to this day. I knew Jeff Garcia. I knew him well. And he was a guy who who was playing three sports all the way through everything growing up and playing everything as well. And he gets to high school, and what happens? He plays football. And the basketball coach tells him, you have to choose. You can't play football and basketball. You have to choose. You can't play for me if you're going to play football. It blows my mind that the varsity high school basketball coach, who had a future NFL quarterback on his roster, couldn't put his own ego and his self-interest aside to go, hey, I recognize you're a tremendous athlete. I recognize that you're like six one, and you you know you're starting point guard on our basketball team, and you might have a future you know in football or basketball or who knows, but couldn't put his own self interest aside. And I think that coach, I mean, it's almost criminal that that coach forced him out of basketball, and said you can't play for me unless you do it year round. And and I it was the first time I ever saw or heard anybody do that, and I just shook my head at it and thought, that is ridiculous. And I look back now and I go, gosh, we have a lot of coaches now who are telling kids, you need to do this year-round. That's the thing is when we were in school, it's they did it in high school because that happened to me as well. I remember I was it was summer baseball, summer basketball, and you know we had way more baseball games than basketball games. And so I was playing both, and we made out a schedule of you know when I'm going to play basketball, when I'm going to play baseball. Then all of a sudden the baseball coach is like, hey, you know what? Uh, he put me at shortstop. And he goes, if you want to stay shortstop, you got to play baseball every game. And I said, well, no, we already came up with the schedule, and then I'm going to split it up. And then that's when I kind of knew, like, okay, like I love playing basketball more than I did baseball. But it that was in high school. You're right. Now it's now it's you know they're in fourth grade, and you got to make the choice. We got to go basketball or baseball, whatever it is. And they don't overtly say in fourth grade, you have to do this or you're not going to play. It's more subtle and it's more insidious. The coaches of the club programs who used to be volunteers or maybe they were paid a small stipend to coach the team have turned this into a full-time job. And they are telling the kids, hey, come be part of my club. And, oh, by the way, we've got the A team and then we've got a B team that's just going to practice, you know, that is really uh, comprised of players who, you know, maybe need some developmental work. And then, but you're all going to pay the same amount of money. And then, oh, by the way, you need private lessons. So for $28 an hour, I'll take two or three of you on a side. I'll make, you know, almost 100 bucks an hour, and uh, I'll get you in a gym privately, and we'll drill and drill and drill. 
And and the message to the kids and to the parents is, if you don't do this year-round, and if you don't get the extra lessons, and if you don't belong to the right club or the right team, and you're not working with the right coach, oh, you're not gonna you're gonna fall behind. And so the message isn't, hey, if in fourth and fifth grade, if you don't specialize, you can't be on the team. The message is, yeah, you can be here, but those kids that are competing against you, you know, they're doing the extra work. And really, if you want to take this seriously, you do the extra work. And it's it's much more insidious. There should be limits on when you can play and how often you can play. And there should be, you know, I, I don't like that some adults have turned this into their profession. They become experts when they, you know, I look back and I you start to do a little bit of digging around about some of the people who are coaching the clubs and coaching the teams. They don't have the expertise to do it. You know, what qualifies them? to be that person. Oh, they dreamed up the club and they made a website? Oh, great. You know, it doesn't make you a great coach. And and uh, it's just invasive. I think it's ruined it. I think it's spoiled it. I think it's, uh, it's a crying shame. And I think, you know, if you're a club coach who has a good heart and you're in it for the right reasons, you know who you are. But if you're a club coach who is a glorified wannabe coach who is there going, hey, I hated my job and so I've turned this basketball thing or baseball thing or volleyball thing into a year-round job for myself you ought to be ashamed of yourself i think that whole industry is infected and i and i really applaud the pro athletes who come on this show and go on other shows and say hey i played three sports or i played two sports i didn't let some grown-up whose whose uh career ceiling was coaching a club team i didn't let some grown-up tell me that i couldn't do it and and, you know, I'm looking, talking now at college athletes at Oregon and Oregon State and other places who who can step forth and go, hey, I played. You know, great example. There's a volleyball player at Oregon named Daly McClellan, who's a hell of a player, hell of a volleyball player, dominated the club scene growing up here in, in Oregon. I her, She played on the same team as my daughter when they were 12. Daly went and played basketball in, in, in the offseason. She created an offseason for herself. She could have got sucked up into the idea that she had to specialize and be with only one club. Nope, she bounced around to her parents' credit. They had her playing basketball. She sometimes missed a volleyball practice or a match because she had a basketball game. Good for her. Parents got it. She made it anyway. Scholarship, full ride to Oregon. Those stories are out there, and they're out there in greater abundance than, you know, the uh, very rarely. If at all, have I ever had anybody on the show who said, I really benefited from not doing anything else but playing baseball year-round. I played 600 games. It was great for me to not do anything but think about. Nobody comes on the show and says that. No. Tom Glavin comes on the show and he talks about the fact that he went and played hockey. And Dominican Sue comes on the show and says, I played soccer. Alex Molden, who played in the NFL, comes on and he says, no, no, no I played other things. And his kids, I watch the Molden kids, they're playing all kinds of sports. It's the right thing to do. Let your kids be kids. Leave it here. I love how Doc Rivers has made the transition from coach to NBA analyst back to coach. ESPN's Mike Breen. A little bit of sarcasm here. Thanking Doc Rivers for his many weeks of service uh, to the network. 
And good evening, everyone. Along with Doris Burke, Mike Green on hand, Cassidy Hubbard with us as well. First order of business is who's available tonight. For Dallas, Kyrie Irving is out. For Phoenix, Eric Gordon is out. For ABC ESPN, Doc Rivers is out. Our dear friend has decided that life as an NBA broadcaster is way too stressful, so he's decided to opt for a less stressful job, an NBA head coach on a team that's trying to win a championship. We thank him for all his many weeks of service, and we wish him all luck in the world. His many weeks of service. There you go. Um, Is that a good job? Because some coaches like it. I think they see the broadcast booth or the platform as a softer easier, gentler place to exist. The money's good. Don't have to do all the practices and the prep. Just need to be there when the camera goes on. Um, I uh, I looked at Jim Harbaugh going to the Chargers. You're going to see the other jobs start to fill up. Bill Belichick's still out there. Does anybody believe, like, Stephen, do you think Bill Belichick would be good on air? Yes, I do in certain spots. Because I, I think, because... Nobody's going to know the game more than Bill Belichick, right? And so it's kind of what we talked about uh, this all this week is can he provide us something that we don't know about or that we wouldn't you know think about the, the coaches talk about? And he can provide that better than anybody else. So I think if he does it the right way, yeah, he can be good on TV. The personality thing, I think it was more of a more of a shtick over in New England. And so I think he can lighten up just a little bit, and I think he would if he was on TV. So I actually think he'd be – Pretty good on TV. I, I'm, I'm for it. I had a Bill Belichick brush. Some of you have heard the story maybe multiple times, but I'm going to tell it again because there might be somebody out there who doesn't know it. This came 23, 24 years ago. I had some football cards, some 1950s football cards, and I they were you know not anything fancy, not anything super valuable, but it was like kind of like uh, common cards that were fillers and I just didn't have the heart I wasn't into collecting them and I looked at it and I went what are these worth and I just decided I would put the the, the stack of cards that I had it was maybe 10 or 15 cards from 1950s football 1950s tops it was like a 55 or 58 tops football cards and 10 Mar- Ted March Broda was the most recognizable name I put them on eBay Long, long way of just saying I put a stack of cards on eBay. And um, the cards sold. And lo and behold, that stack of 1950s football cards sold for $58. I'll never forget the amount. It wasn't that much money, but I got something for something I didn't want. That's how eBay works. And I very quickly, as if you've ever done an eBay transaction, I very quickly figured out that I was in a transaction with Bill Belichick. He won the auction on eBay. He was then an assistant coach with the New York Jets. He was the defensive coordinator with the Jets. And uh, I was a sports columnist working at the Fresno Bee. So this must have been 1999, 2000-ish, right around there. And Belichick won the auction. And he very quickly said, uh, I need your address. And I'm all of a sudden emailing with Bill Belichick because Bill Belichick's address, I don't know if it was a PayPal transaction or not, because, no, he sold me, he sent me a check. Uh, so his address was Bill Belichick at NewYorkJets.com. And I was like, is this the football coach, Bill Belichick? And he was like, yes. 
And so we went back and forth. We were emailing or messaging back and forth on eBay about the transaction. And lo and behold, um, Bill Belichick and I do this transaction. He pays for the cards. He sends me a, a like a letter to my house with the return address that says Belichick. He was living in Muttontown, New York at the time. And he sends me a check for $58. It's Bill Belichick's check with his signature on it. Now, this was not yet Bill Belichick who went on to win a record number of Super Bowls. This was Bill Belichick, D coordinator with the Jets. So this would be the equivalent of, you know, getting a assistant coach who you kind of knew his name and getting that guy in kind of a transaction. Um, Frank Bush or Greg Williams last year. Greg Williams got fired. Frank Bush, you know, interim coordinator, whatever. It it would be like getting Greg Williams to buy your eBay football cards and you'd go, okay, I think that guy's a football coach in the NFL. But Bill Belichick does this transaction with me. He buys these cards. He sends me the check. Like an idiot, I go and cash the check. This is not a day, uh, uh, not a story I love that much, but this is not a day where you could, like, take a picture of the check and deposit it using the mobile app. This was you had to take the check to the bank era. And I took the check to the bank. I should have kept the damn check. It Today would be worth more than 58 bucks. And clearly it was a cool story. But I did this back and forth with Belichick and found him to be kind of engaging. We became pen pals for a series of a few days in which I was asking him questions about football, and he was asking me questions back. And then... Bill Belichick finally asked me the question that fractured our relationship forever because I never heard from him again after I answered this question. Bill Belichick wrote to me and said, what do you do for work? And I answered him honestly. And I said, I'm a sports columnist at a newspaper. Crickets. Never heard from Bill Belichick again. But he was really engaging and interesting, and he was kind of writing me about why he was collecting the cards. He told me he's not like a really like a sports card collector, but he had gotten in the habit of finding the old football cards of a bunch of guys he coached with. And Ted Marchabroda was in his coaching tree. And so Belichick was interested in getting that Ted Marchabroda football card from the 1950 set. He really wasn't interested in any of the other cards that were in that stack. But I got this great story about it. I know uh, years later when he became coach of the Patriots, the Boston newspaper reached out to me because I had mentioned it somewhere. They said that is a really cool story. And uh, they wrote a Boston Globe wrote a story about it, I think. And I never heard from Belichick again, never asked him and had an interaction with him. But I found him to be very different than the Bill Belichick who we saw in postgame news conferences who was intentionally boring and, uh, you know, not going out of his way to be not very interesting. Uh, all right. Good to be in Frankfurt. Um, you know, got in this morning, good flight in. Um, got in this morning, just kind of rolling along here, and, and um, beautiful facility. Um, so look forward to getting out there this afternoon, wrapping up our preparations, and, and uh, be ready to go on Sunday. Are we doing pretzels for lunch? Seriously. I think he's a really interesting guy who plays boring. And most people are not that interesting and they're trying to be interesting. Bill Belichick, I think he's a super interesting guy. But I also think, like, we didn't get to see it very often. 
we got to see Bill Belichick kind of. Your opinion, what is the headline going into the season? I don't know. <laughs> We're just taking it one day at a time. That's the Bill Belichick we got. We didn't get Bill Belichick at his retirement news conference or his departure news conference from the Patriots. You know, there's so many memories of the fans, the, the send-offs, um, the parades, um, the Sundays, you know, whatever the, whatever the situations are, um, the letters of support, uh, the, you know, seeing the fans, you know, away from here, you know, at a gas station or a grocery store, or, you know, where you bump into them. Uh, Patriot fans here, and not just in New England, but uh, they extend nationally and even internationally uh, as I've traveled. Uh, it's amazing how far the, the arm reaches. We saw that this year in, in Germany. So, uh, so appreciative of the fans for all the support they've given me, uh, my family, uh, and this football team. And uh, it's with um, just so many fond memories and, and uh, thoughts that I you know, think about the Patriots and, and I'll always be a Patriot. I look forward to coming back here. Uh, but at this time, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna move on, and um, I look forward. I'm excited for the future, um, but always very very appreciative of the opportunity here, the support here, uh, and you know the what Robert what you've done for me. Thank you. I would have liked to have heard more of that guy during his coaching career. Now it's possible that Bill Belichick gets shut out of the hiring cycle. Um, Raheem Morris to the Falcons, Jim Harbaugh to the Chargers. Um, you know, it's possible Belichick doesn't end up anywhere. There was a bet on the board, Stephen, just a few days ago. It was 35-1 to 1 that Belichick doesn't get any job. That bet is now off the board. And I'm kind of looking at Belichick going, is there a problem here, Stephen? Are people saying 71-year-old guy doesn't have much left? We don't want to have to go through this again. Or is it a control issue? What's the issue with somebody hiring Belichick? I think it's probably a little bit of all of that, the control issue, because you know he's going to want some type of control, right? Belichick's not just going to fall in line and do his own thing and or uh, you know follow, follow other people's orders because he doesn't have to. He's Bill Belichick. He's won so many Super Bowls. He kind of deserves that. But I also think there may be a question, John, of has the game passed him by? Uh, you know, the game has evolved so much the last five seasons, really, of how you play. And the Patriots' offense has been so uninspiring the last couple seasons once Tom Brady left with they have Mac Jones. And, you know, they had, like, maybe the worst offense in all of the NFL this season. The guy can coach defense, but can he coach some offense? I don't know. I think that's still a real question. So I think he's still a great coach. I still think he can, uh, you know, win a Super Bowl as a coach and he can provide something. But it really feels like there are a lot of questions around the league of is this guy really have it uh, have it anymore? All right, so the the current Belichick line on DraftKings has gone from Belichick at being thirty five to one to not be a coach of a team to Belichick now at minus two thousand to not be a head coach of an NFL team. Oh man, we should so we should have jumped on that one, John. We, what were we doing? should have jumped on it. I heard from a listener who uh, who today told me, "Hey, I got it at thirty five to one," and I went and I looked it up, and it's right. It was. 35 to 1. Now it appears as though he's not going to be with a team. And I think it's really an interesting study. And some of it is his age, has the game passed him by. But I also think there's a part of it that's like, hey, we saw what he did without Tom Brady. And you're not getting a young Tom Brady with Belichick. And so maybe if you're even Arthur Blank with the Falcons, you're going with Raheem Morris. 
It's a really interesting study. Anna's coming along with the 5 at 5, plus so much more ahead. Leave it here. I got a fun story coming tomorrow at johnconzano.com. I interviewed a gaggle of athletic directors, a long line of athletic directors, a busload of athletic directors, SEC, ACC, Big Ten, Pac-12, Mountain West Conference. I went from sea to shining sea and to the islands, interviewed them, talked to them about their job, how their job has changed, what's new in their job, what's harder about their job, what's different about their job. What do they miss about what their job used to be? I had I got fascinating feedback from college athletic directors who are saying, this thing is for the birds. Not exactly. But some of them are saying that. It's a different job. It's a broken industry. I'll publish it tomorrow, johnconzano.com. If you want to get it in real time, make sure that you get a free subscription or a paid subscription by going to johnconzano.com. So we're going to get it. I'm there for you. Anna's popped into the studio. And by popped in, she literally popped in just now. She's got five or so of the best stories in sports. Not a slow news day. A lot going on. NFL playoff games going on this weekend. Super Niners playing on Sunday against the Detroit Lions. You got the Ravens hosting the Chiefs. Um, How's your day going? Good. When you say I pop in, you make it sound like I'm Kramer, you know, on Seinfeld. It's how you enter. <laughs> Door pops open and yeah. I kind of slide in. I like that. I like that. I don't mind that image. It's not a boring image. <laughs> should come through the door. Uh, we saw a pretty good movie yesterday, Stephen. We saw a good movie you should go see. It's called American Fiction. How would you describe this movie, American Fiction, Anna? I, I like it. By the way, it's an Academy uh, nominee. It is? Yeah. Already? Or... Yeah, I, I believe it's uh, it's up. Oh, okay. I, somebody told me that today. Really? I, I said, go see American Fiction, and they said, oh, it's... Uh, it's one of the uh, nominees for, oh. for Best Picture. Well, there you go. Gosh, we feel smarter, don't we? Yeah, Isn't that we a go good to feeling? see these good movies all the time. You know, <laughs> we didn't go because nominated it was for nominee. Best Picture, oh, yeah. Best Actor. Jeff Jeffrey Wright got a yeah. nomination. Oh, good. Uh, Sterling K. Brown got Best Actor in a Supporting Role nomination. Yeah. Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score. So here we were yesterday, going, "Is it, this movie going to be any good? Yeah, it's any good. It's." <laughs> It's nominated. <laughs> um, it's very well written. Uh, the characters are complex. It kind of hits all those marks for me because it's like it's one of those movies where wait, I'm not sure who I'm rooting for here. Yeah. And then it changes, you know, through the movie. I I think Jeffrey Wright, who by the way, he's one of those actors that you've seen him in a bunch of things. Yeah. And you might not know his name. Yeah. I I hate to say that, but you know, he's a guy who he's got a Tony Award, right? Uh-huh. He's got an Emmy Award. He's got a Golden Globe Award. Yeah, I say Jeffrey Wright. Do you know who I'm talking about? <laughs> Steven, you know who Jeffrey Wright is? No. Okay. Well, if you Google it, you'll know. And I think the first time I saw him was Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. That's when he kind of popped onto my radar. Mm-hmm. 
But he's way he's been doing it way, way, way before that. Yeah. But I believe his start was in theater. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Broadway. Off Broadway. I said that. Remember we yeah. left the movie last night and I was like, yeah. that guy has like a Shakespearean quality to how he performs. Off Broadway. That's where he got his there start. You go. Yeah, there you go. He's really good. I, I, I actually think he's got a he's got a puncher's chance to win. I don't know. Paul Giamatti's kind of the I don't know. The lead he there. was good. He was really good. American fiction. He plays an author. Uh-huh. I'm not gonna spoil this. Really, really good story. Well done movie. Surprises you. Sneaky good. Mm-hmm. That's my review. There you go. Thumbs up. All right. Anna's got the five at five. Let's do it. The five at five. Number one. What do you got? Will he or won't he? Devo Samuel's status ahead of Sunday's NFC Championship game against the Lions has been in question this week, but... Kyle Shanahan told reporters today that he would be a limited participant in today's practice, which a lot of people are saying is a positive sign as he approaches. I guess Jerry Rice has been saying this week that he would play. I don't know what kind of Jerry's going to play information. Jerry, uh, Rice. the Niners should be 14 point favorites. <laughs> Jerry Rice plays He's coming out of retirement. But I got to be honest, when I heard limited practice. I saw it as a smokescreen, and maybe it's the skeptic in me. I kind of wondered if the Niners just wanted to give the Packers something to think about. Um, Christian McCaffrey said it was awesome. Anytime he's out there, he said, quote, he brings an extra set of juice that's hard to mimic without him. Um, Apparently, he participated as he normally would during practice that was open to the media, which is stretching. (laughs) And later... (laughs) Caught some passes from Brock Purdy. Um, George Kittle said, quote, Debo is always great, end quote. So you are you saying you don't actually think he's going to play? I'm saying I'm just, I always hear smokescreen. Hmm. Like, I don't know, Stephen, what'd you, limited participant. Uh, is he playing or not? I think he gives it a go. I think he gives it, he goes out there. I don't know that he plays the whole game, but uh, I, I think he I think he plays. He's got to. The 49ers need him. I don't think they need him. I don't. I think they win without him, but I think they're better with him. I, but and if he does play, I hope it doesn't hurt his chances of being in the Super Bowl because that's that's where they really need him. If they get in there against the Ravens, you're already chalking up a win. I kind of am. <laughs> Is that arrogant? That obnoxious. obnoxious Sorry, Lions. Fan. Dear Lions fans, you've had your fun. <laughs> Congratulations. Your cute little story is over. Jeez. <laughs> kind of team colors are those? Powder blue? Come on. <laughs> Number two. Well, gosh. Sorry, Lions fans, but I'm sticking with the 49ers because... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Five at five is all Niners. <laughs> Go ahead. Can you Next tell story. that John likes the 49ers? <laughs> Next story. Uh, bring bias. It, bring it on. Bias. What do you got? You got something on Dan Campbell, the Lions coach? You got something on uh, their their star running back? Uh, How they Charles Barkley has a man crush on Dan Campbell, but that's, that's a different story. Um, the 49ers uh, stadium, which has been known as Levi's Stadium yeah. since 2014, will continue being Levi's Stadium because the 49ers are capitalizing on the moment to announce that they've reached a 10-year naming rights extension with Levi's 
that will keep that company name on it through the 2043 season. My gosh, that sounds really far away. The deal got done even though the two sides still had 10 years remaining on a 20-year $220 million <laughs> deal. So Sell high. Like, Levi's... It's $170 million more to keep it Levi's Stadium forever. <laughs> Did you know Levi Strauss was never married? No, I didn't know that. He died in 1902. Okay. His estate was worth $30 million. Oh. Now, his nephew, Sigmund, yes. had a daughter named Elise uh-huh. who married Walter Haas. Now, the Haas family, okay. now currently, this is important. I'm, I'm Follow trying. me. I'm trying. Stay with me. Now, I'm, you know my, my pain here, Stephen. Trying. The Haas family currently runs Levi Strauss and Company. Okay. You may remember that the Haas family has a connection in the Pac-12 at Cal. Haas Pavilion. Mm. That family, they're big Cal Bears donors, mm-hmm. the Levi's people. The 49ers have tapped into that, obviously, mm-hmm. and said, hey, you know what? Let's do this. We're in the Bay Area. It used to be Tech. Now it's Levi Strauss because the Haas family has got the tie to Cal and Berkeley. I'm kind of wondering where Mark Madsen and the Cal Bears men's basketball program, like they need a practice facility. Start wearing jeans. <laughs> you know? Get their attention. They gave money to, by the way, Cal Berkeley in 1897, the Levi Strauss Foundation gave uh, a donation to Cal. They gave 28 scholarships to Cal. Hmm. So they're big on Cal. They're big on the Super Niners. There you go. Uh, You didn't include Christian McCaffrey in your uh, five at five. What about him? Did you know he's selling his mansion? Oh, I'm not done with the five. That was only, that that was number two. (laughs) You're going to do all 49ers for real? Well, I can I can do that next number three. No, no, no. You don't you don't have to do all forty niners. This is kind of obnoxious. <laughs> it's getting. I'm putting my foot down. That was like good. I like. Well, maybe pasta. she's going to go all lions tomorrow. Yeah, I like pasta, Anna. Yeah. But you can't serve pasta seven days a week. At some point, I'm going to go. Eh, you know, come on. Well, the mansion sale felt more of like a dessert story. Oh, we're waiting for that. So I was going to keep it to right. the end. Okay, go separate ahead. Separate it with some okay. other All stuff. All right, moving on. So much editorial. Forget I, forget I brought it up. Number three. Can I do this? Sure uh, New England Patriots wide receiver Keyshawn Booty was arrested in Baton Rouge on charges pertaining to illegal online gambling. He was accused of creating an alias that claimed that he was 21 years or older to illegally bet on sports games while he was underage and attending LSU. So he bet on games, uh, including ones that apparently he played in. Yeah, you can't do that. And the wagers and payouts reportedly involved several hundred thousand dollars. Okay, then you just got to start to wonder about... The fact that, like, who are you in cahoots with on this illegal gambling? Um, They found that this went on for, like, a year. He was 20 and uh, placed 8,900 wagers, 17 bets on NCAA games, six involving LSU. Um, Against the rules, obviously, with the NCAA, also illegal. The NFL is declining comment. The NCAA is saying this is a bad thing. Um... 
Patriots are saying they're co- cooperating with Louisiana police. Um, this is a guy who uh, had a 308-yard receiving game as a freshman in college, and then it was kind of disappointing finish for him. Sounds like he was distracted. You think? As an athlete. Does it matter to you? Because I think this detail is interesting. It says that he never bet against himself and threw games. I think that's something that people who do things wrong start to try to justify. Okay. Because here's the problem. The problem isn't, did you wager for or against your team? Yeah, of course it's worse if he bet against his team. Sure. Because he did something to, you know, there was a deterrent. Yeah. But even if you're betting for your team, the fact that you're betting places you at risk of coming into contact with people who are going to what? Um, extort you mm-hmm. uh, and say, hey, I, I'm going to bet against you. Now I need you to do this. Or if you if he gets in debt to the point where he has to give up information, we don't know. Maybe somebody else was betting against the Patriots in LSU based on his advice. Hey, bet against us this week. But he didn't bet. It, uh, it just it opens a can of worms. I give Pete Rose a little bit of a pass on all this because Pete, while he was gambling as a manager, to our knowledge and in all the uh, report that baseball and the investigation they did, it was never determined that he bet on a game when he was playing. When he was managing, that's kind of scummy. Because even if you're, and then he said, I only bet on the Reds, I bet on our team to win. Well, hell, you went to the mattresses trying to win today. Did you rest guys yesterday? Did you rest pitchers yesterday because you knew you were going to win today? I don't, so Pete gets in, you know, he gets in trouble as a manager, but I give him a pass as a player. He should, Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. LSU is trying to do damage control and say we have no evidence that any other student athletes participated in these prohibited activities. So they have to say LSU. Get F. King Alexander on the phone. Another F. King disaster. Number four. Uh, All right, let's turn to golf. Before we turn back to the 49ers, uh, Nick Dunlap (laughs) turns pro. Yay. After becoming the first amateur to win the PGA Tour event in 33 years. So University of Alabama golfer Nick Dunlap. He won that American Express tournament on Sunday. Youngest amateur to win a PGA Tour event since 1910 i didn't know that Mm. so today he announced that guess what i'm gonna go pro and he'll make his pro debut at the at&t pro-am um i thought doug ferguson the longtime associated press golf writer made an interesting point about this you know he points out that dunlap turns pro the pga tour press release mentions that he's the first quote reigning u.s amateur champion since tiger to win Tiger was already a pro. Now, the first amateur winner was Phil Mickelson, Mm -hmm. 1991. The PGA Tour press release did not mention Phil Mickelson (laughs) because of the LIV PGA (laughs) battle. That's funny. Doug Ferguson pointing that out. I'm still confused, and I've asked golf people to help me understand this. Yeah. They can't explain it to me. What? I'm confused how a quarterback in college football can go to, let's just say, Cadillac. Okay, uh-huh. and Cadillac can say to Bo Nix or Michael Penix Jr. or the quarterback at Alabama, "Hey, we're going to give you an NIL deal. We're going to give you seven figures. We want you to drive a Cadillac and talk about it. That's legal." Uh-huh. But 
Nick Dunlap could win the Cadillac Open and he can't collect the purse or he loses his NCAA eligibility. They say you're a pro now because, you you know, he technically would be on the yeah. tour or whatever. Right. What's the difference? What are we talking about here? I know. It's stupid. It's just, yeah, it's dumb. It's really dumb. Just, I'm, everyone, all week people are like, is he going to turn pro or is he not? I'm like, can't they just pay him? Like, can't the... Can't the tour be his NIL deal? I don't know. Yeah, no, you can't win that. I cash guess I'm stupid. Of 1.5 million, you know. But you can take the car, and and good on him. He's going to turn pro. He's going to make money. He should be allowed to. Just find it kind of silly. Number five. Haven't heard about the Niners in a while. Well, you're in luck. Christian McCaffrey is uh, putting his North Carolina abode on the market for. A humble $12.5 million. Ouch. It's an estate. It's on more than eight acres overlooking Lake Norman. It has 500 feet of waterfront footage. How many bathrooms? I'm getting there. Okay. I'm trying to get through all the rest of the I judge all houses by the number of bathrooms. (laughs) Well, it's the main... You know, it's really... So there's a main six bedrooms in okay. the main house, and then there's a guest house that's a one-bedroom guest house. I don't know. It's the Lincoln looking. Riley's house that he bought in L.A. Yeah, how many bathrooms did 12, that have? Twelve. Twelve bathrooms and seven bedrooms, yeah. 13,000 square feet. Describes yeah. USC perfectly all flash, no <laughs> substance. <laughs> So he goes to a different bathroom. Like, if you lived in a house like that, you would just go to a different bathroom every time you went to the How many just for the kids trips trip. to the restroom would you have to make? <laughs> How many days before you repeated a bathroom? Depends on whether you house. have bladder issues. I want my coach to have two bathrooms. That's it. Two? Yeah. Russell Wilson's house You're in Denver if they have more than has two 12 bathrooms. bathrooms. 12 bathrooms. Yeah, 25 mil. Okay. Lincoln Riley has 12 bathrooms. How many bathrooms for Christian McCaffrey? I don't know. It doesn't. This article doesn't say. Okay. I do see the primary, a photograph of the primary bathroom yeah. in Christian McCaffrey's bathroom. It has a uh, tub in the middle of the room with a chandelier over it. Mm. Well, Try to get a, that image out of your head. There's nothing like going to the bathroom with a chandelier in the room. A three-car garage was transformed into this massive gym that holds professional training. Wine cellar. The equipment can be negotiated with the sale of the house because guess what? Nobody wants to take down and set up new gym equipment. Well, Christian McCaffrey making money on it. Apparently, he only bought it for seven and a half mil. Oh well, so there he's, you go. He he's, hasn't made money yet. He only makes money if somebody buys it. But he's kind of a real estate mogul. If you think about it, you know, he bought it for 7.5. Three years later, he's selling it for 12.5. There you go. That's the five at five. A little bit light on the Niners news. Um, I know. Sorry. Look, um, I think it's interesting. Do you think there's cachet in buying a former athlete's home if the former athlete no longer plays for the team that is in the region? So, you know, when he was with the Carolina Panthers, this is where he lived. Now he's with the Niners. I just kind of wonder sometimes if, like, Rasheed Wallace's house that he sold that was in Lake Oswego, was there cachet to that, or was there kind of a cloud hanging over the fact that it was Sheed and he was a polarizing figure and 
Do you disclose that or not? I think it really depends on the buyer because like anything, it depends on what does the buyer value. If the buyer really values and is the kind of person that wants to go around telling everyone I live in Rashid Wallace's former home, then they'll pay the price for it, you know? But I, for a lot of other yeah. people, it'd be like, well, who cares? Didn't you do a story one time on TV that it about resale and, like, if there was a murder at the house? <laughs> yeah. It was a hard thing to sell your house? No. The thing is that it's not, uh, at least when I did the story, you're not required to include information like that in the disclosures. Like, for anybody that's bought a home, you get this list of disclosures. Like, oh, we had a flood in, you know, 2012. Yeah, it's mandatory. tree fell into the home at some point. Sorry, too soon. Um, and But in Oregon, there is no requirement that if you've had something terrible, like a crime, occur at that home that you disclose it. So the story that I did was like, you could be moving into this home where, you know, like a triple homicide occurred. And if you were new to the area, you might not know it. Would you want to know it? Should you know that? Should that be a disclosure? Personally, I would want to know. Yeah, I would. What if it was just died of natural causes? Hey, that's where. Yeah. No, I wouldn't. You know, I kind of wouldn't want to. Let's say I go in the studio. It's the home studio. That's where Kanzano died. <laughs> he was doing his show, middle of the show, dead air. Everybody was wondering what's going on. Just turns out it was a dead host. Would would the next buyer of the house be entitled to know that? Want to know that? Or just wake in the middle of the night and hear <laughs> the sounds of sports radio and go, where is that coming from? Have you noticed, Stephen, how often he speaks of his mortality? I have. I I would love to know what you're saying from from beyond the grave. Like, what's your takes? You know, forty nine. Is it all forty niners all the time? What are we talking? All about you here? heard was the five at five. Anna, number one. <laughs> oh, gosh. oh, we got a scandal in fantasy football. I got to tell you all about it next. A little bit of housekeeping. Uh, ACC schedule came out yesterday. There were some first-time evers on the schedule. First time ever in college football history that Stanford will play Syracuse, North Carolina State, and Louisville. Cal will play North Carolina State, Florida State, and Wake Forest. All of that will happen next season in the ACC. I uh, will never get used to it. Oregon State's road game at Cal that was originally scheduled in September has been moved to October 26th. Uh, Beaver's home schedule includes seven games. We'll give you more on that as it develops. Uh, a little bit of a scandal going on in fantasy football. Um, I'm not a fantasy football guy. I'm not against fantasy football, but I have found that I am the kind of person where if I go all in, or if I do something, I go all in with it. I don't dabble. And... So I have steered away from fantasy football, but some of these, you know, websites that do contests for fantasy football for the season or for the postseason, um, you know, obviously I, I hear over here friends talking about it or coworkers talking about it. I don't necessarily do like a fantasy league for the whole season, but I'll you know, I'll dabble and look at games and, you know, certainly like the prop bets for the playoff games and stuff like that. But there's a scandal now coming out of a fantasy football website that has me kind of shaking my head. An employee for the National Fantasy Football Championship has been fired. 
for being involved in a cheating scandal during a NFL playoff tournament that has a six-figure prize. Apparently, uh, an employee used internal controls to make advantageous changes to a contestant's roster after games had ticked off. So this was a head-to-head, you're playing against somebody else, not you playing against the house, fantasy football contest. It included swapping in a player who had already scored a touchdown. Oh, that's so bad. Now, internal investigation, employee gets terminated, Sports Hub is the parent company for the National Fantasy Football Championship, and this Hold'em contest had a prize of $150,000. It attracted 1,521 entries, and uh, the other players are the are the ones who noticed the issue and brought it to the attention of the tournament operators. So they were trying to compare their rosters to the lineup of the contestant, and they noticed, um, you know what? There is a uh, contestant's roster that just changed. So basically it was an hour into the wild card games on January 20th, and the user switched... Raheem Mostert of the Dolphins for Packers running back Aaron Jones. Uh, Mostert had rushed for 33 yards on eight carries. Jones rushed for 118 yards and three touchdowns. So this was a good swap. And guess what? You can be a pretty good fantasy player if you're allowed to change your players after the result. So uh, next week, the following week in the divisional round, same contestant switched out uh, Chiefs receiver Rasheed Rice for Travis Kelsey right after Kelsey scored a touchdown. Contestant was disqualified. Employee was identified. But isn't the damage done? Doesn't this hurt the whole industry? As much as we talk about the LSU football player who was gambling apparently on games that he was uh, participating in both in college and with uh, in the NFL with the Patriots, like that damages the credibility of the league. This damages the credibility of fantasy football. It's a blow to the whole industry. Do you see it as good or bad, Stephen, that we know this? I think it's good. I feel like it's good because as a guy who likes to gamble, I don't really play a lot of like daily fantasy football or basketball like this this contest was. Um, I think it's good to know that that people are still out there trying to cheat the system. And when they are, they're getting caught and they're getting reported and then they're getting banned from it because that it's just, you want to feel like if you're going to play in a contest, you're going to do any type of competition. It's going to be as fair as possible. And it's going to be tough because as long as money's on the line, John, people are going to find ways to manipulate their way to win. But I think it is good that we know that this stuff is out there because then it's made it to me like it almost sounds contradictory, but to me, it makes it sound like it's going to be more safe. Like they are actually governing it, what's happening, and that if there is, you know, problems going on, they're going to catch it. And then when I do play, I feel like okay, well, you know, they got at least that guy out of there. I don't do the head-to-head fantasy thing where you have to pick a lineup and do whatever. I like more seeing like the prop propositions, like you know, will Brock Purdy throw for two hundred forty-nine and a half yards more or less? You know. Uh, I like doing that stuff. I don't like to have to manage that stuff, and it gives me one more thing that I, I fear people have to think about. Like you, you have to. Do you have to count for the fact that there might be an insider who is 
you know, rigging the competition like that. This just isn't good. And it's not good. Let me on that note, let me throw some potential prop bets at you for the individual games. Let's start with the uh, early game. Chiefs Ravens. By the way, uh, Ravens now minus four. But let's talk. Lamar Jackson to score two touchdowns or more, six and a half to one. You like it? Uh, no, two and a half, two touchdowns is a lot. I could see him getting to one, but uh, two, no. I will say, all regular season, Lamar hadn't been running very often, and then we saw last week against the Texans, he really, they really unleashed him, and, and it's like what we've seen before. You know, remember back in the Rose Bowl, uh, Justin Herbert running the ball, and you know, the teams start to you know let their quarterbacks go a little bit. It'll be interesting to see how the Chiefs defend that. So I think Lamar is going to have a really nice game running the football. I just wouldn't go two touchdowns. Lamar Jackson, um, touchdown passes, one and a half, over, under. Uh, yeah, it looks like over plus 140. I take the over on that one. I, I I could see Lamar throwing a little more in this game than running the football. I think it's like I said, I think the Chiefs will be a little more ready than the Texans were to defend the run of Lamar Jackson because all season long they weren't really running much with Lamar as or as much as they had been in the past. So I think Kansas City will have that ready. I think Lamar could have a nice passing game against this uh, Chiefs secondary who struggled against the Bills. Like, they, you know, I still stand by the Bills played a better game and they ended up losing. The Chiefs defense gave up some plays and there were some drop passes. I think Baltimore could throw the ball a little bit. I'd take the over on that one. Patrick Mahomes over and under one and a half. Um, Give me... That's a man. That's a tough one. Uh, give me the under. Give me the under on that wow. one. Wow. I think he gets one. I don't think he gets two. I think. Uh, I think the Ravens secondary and their linebacking core is going to be able to stop Travis Kelsey, and so it's going to be tough to get passing touchdowns because that's where he got his touchdowns against the Bills. Was uh, Travis Kelsey? Rasheed Rice may have a touchdown or two. Like I may lose because of that, but I think that. The Bills were so hurt on the defensive side, especially the linebacker and the safety position. The Ravens aren't. The Ravens are really healthy at that position. I think they can be able to guard Travis Kelsey. They're going to shut him down pretty well. Uh, so I'd go under on that. You know, you can get uh, one of the props that's on the board for that game is uh, both teams to score one or more passing touchdowns. The no is plus 175. Mm. You like that? Is it possible so Mahomes gets shut out? Uh, I went. No, I wouldn't bet that. No, I don't like it. Here's a weird bet. Um, longest touchdown, over or under thirty-eight and a half yards. I would go under. I'd go under on that one. I don't know that there's going to be a lot of explosive plays for touchdowns in this one, but um, that's interesting because you know the Ravens do have an explosive offense. Like I said, Lamar can run the football. Uh, you know, Zay Flowers is one of the more exciting receivers. I could see it. Uh, but I'd go under because I, I don't think the Chiefs are going to have very many explosive plays. It's going to be more methodical out of them, so I'd take the under. There you go. I love this stuff. Uh, I uh, I think that that scandal hurts fantasy sports. I mean, obviously it does. But I, I'm torn on, like, you know, there's part of me that's like, it's a, this is a news story. People deserve to know that it's out there. Of course, let's put sunshine on it. But I also think about the industry, and I think, you know, here we are in the NFL – with a story in college football in the NFL involving a player that bet on games and then a story about Fantasy League and some employee that was rigging the games. This is all you know, what? included among the top ten stories of the day. Well, what's more damaging to the NFL shield? Is it the player that was betting or is it the, the fact? That, is it? Yeah, the player. Don't you think? Like, it, it hurts that individual company, but I don't see 
like the other fantasy sports betting wagering sites, you know, cringing at that, even though, you know, I say it hurts the industry. Of course, it it questions the credibility of it. But I also look at that individual site and I go, that's kind of on them. Yeah, I mean, DraftKings and FanDuel have had those type of scandals before. Before they became sportsbooks, they've had the same type of scandals where, you know, there was insiders that worked with a company that, you know, was giving out information to other players. So I, I, I agree with you. I think that's the player is the more damaging of the two. Uh, but I also think that it's fewer and farther between with the players. I don't think I don't think that the players are betting on their games very often. I think if if they are betting, I don't think they're betting on their actual games. I think they could be betting on other NFL games, hmm. but to bet on their bet on their own games, I think they're probably staying away from that. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to talk about the Lions, Niners, objectively, and the Ravens and the Chiefs, objectively. Who's playing in the Super Bowl next? Want a podcast of this show? Make sure you go wherever you get a podcast. Look for the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Appreciate everybody who makes this show part of their day. Obviously got some big games coming up this weekend with the AFC Championship game, Baltimore and Kansas City, and the NFC title game, San Francisco and the Detroit Lions. Um, look, I, I think we can uh, we can agree that uh, uh, Baltimore and San Francisco, everybody's sort of saying that should be the or you know expects that to be the Super Bowl matchup. Um, I actually think uh, you know all four of these teams. I wouldn't be surprised, shocked by anything, but I I tend to lean that way. I I think Baltimore is the best team in the NFL right now, and I I like Baltimore's defense. And I and I think if I like Baltimore's win on Christmas Day, thirty three nineteen over the Niners, Brock Purdy looked rattled. I have a hard time shaking that, and it's that that. You know, that bias of seeing that outcome and seeing the Ravens play the way they did against the Niners that I can't get out of my head. Uh, But let's talk about the AFC title game and the chance that Kansas City has to win this game. As we construct a narrative or or I guess a, uh, uh, a scenario in which the Kansas City Chiefs win the AFC and go back to the Super Bowl and try to repeat, Certainly, I would start that with the fact that Patrick Mahomes is the quarterback and the Kansas City Chiefs have got some proof of performance um, in in big-time games, obviously getting to the platform that they're in. But on Sunday at noon, they'll be in there in Baltimore. And, uh, you know, the more I think about that game, the more I kind of wonder if we not only see the Ravens win it, but we see the Ravens put the Chiefs in a position you know, everybody's talking about Buffalo. Or will they have to blow up the roster? Is it possible if Baltimore beats the Chiefs that Andy Reid and the Chiefs go, we've got to do something too? It's not just Baltimore. Because I think on the offensive side of the ball, Kansas City's missing something. And it might be as simple as they, you know, there's no Tyreek Hill, so there's too much pressure on Travis Kelsey, too much pressure on Patrick Mahomes, and not enough weapons on the offensive side. No, I, think I, yeah. I think I think you're right because there is a lot of pressure on Patrick Mahomes right now, and if Kansas City is to win this game, it's gonna be on Patrick Mahomes' shoulder. Like he was awesome against the Bills, uh, but you know the defense made enough plays, and then it just you talk about the weapons though for the Chiefs. I, I mean, you go back to the Bills game; they tried they tried to get cute and go McCole Hardman at the goal line, and he fumbled out of the end zone. I just don't know, like. Maybe they didn't trust Pacheco in that spot, which would be a weird yeah. thing. But like, they they're trying to do these weird things with 
with all their guys because they don't have that true ace up their sleeve anymore. It used to be Tyreek Hill, Charles Kelsey. Those were the guys that you could rely on every play. Kelsey just doesn't have that in his in his art repertoire anymore. Like he's not that guy anymore. He had a great game, but he's just not that number one guy. I, they are missing that piece, and so I do wonder against the Baltimore Ravens, whose defense has just been so stingy, you know, the last half of the season. And you know, Mike McDonald, the defensive coordinator, he's getting head coaching looks. Like he he's a he's an up and coming coach. Like he's gonna have something for that offense. I don't know, man. I just if it's gonna be the Chiefs win, it's all in Mahomes, and it's Mahomes making every single play, and making everyone better on the field. And I just kind of wonder, can they can they get in a game? Now, I, I saw it earlier in the week. There was a forecast for some possible rain there. I don't know what that's looking like as it heads toward kickoff, and we'll get more on that tomorrow, obviously, and talk about it as we break down these games further. But um, I just keep going back to the season. And, you know, look, I look at the Chiefs' losses. They lose to the Lions. They lose to the Eagles. They lose to the Packers. They lose to the Bills. I'm talking about regular season losses. Those are good teams. And and I I keep coming back to the fact that like they don't allow 30 points in a game. That's, you know, they're they're not a defense that gives up points. And so I kind of think if you get into a game, and this is the kind of game that Kansas City wants to play that is like a uh, you know, 21-20 17 to 20 23-20, that's the kind of game that they have played all year. I kind of just am looking at it going, like, is that a game where you'd rather have Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes? And the answer is both. Both of those guys are capable of winning that kind of game. And I, that's why I keep looking at that four-point spread now, and I'm going, is it at the point now where you start thinking about Kansas City? Or where's the number, Stephen, for you when you start thinking – Kansas City and the points. I mean, four, four is there. Like, I'm starting to think it at four, even though I'm probably going to be on the Ravens still. But if it got any higher, if it got to six, I mean, you, there's no way I couldn't be on Kansas City in that situation. I just – because the Mahomes factor, John, is so scary. And the Andy Reid factor is so scary. But I think for me, like, you look at the other side with the Ravens and John Harbaugh and Lamar Jackson. Like, I trust those guys. I trust those guys to be really good where – there were spots that are that I don't necessarily trust Josh Allen in, and there's spots I don't trust Sean McDermott in. And so the quarterback coach combo was so heavily favored on the Bill or on the over on the Chiefs not against the Bills, where against the Ravens, you could argue that you know the Chiefs have a better combo, but the Ravens is right up there with them. So if it got higher to six, obviously I think it'd be on the Chiefs, but four, I'm starting to think of the Chiefs. I don't like the supporting cast. I just I'm looking now at you know Kansas City's stats for the season. And it, they're so Travis Kelsey heavy. They're so much pressure on Isaiah Pacheco, who's, you know, and a lot was made last year in the Super Bowl that, all right, the Chiefs have done it, and they've done it without a bell cow back that you have to pick high in the draft or you have to be, give a big free agent contract to. And this proves that, you know, you can put together an NFL team like you put together a fantasy league team, like you don't have to value a running back. But very different case when you look at the rest of the teams that are playing into the postseason, like especially on the NFC side, the running backs on the NFC side are absolutely like foundational parts of their offense. And as much as the Chiefs will use Isaiah Pacheco, he's not a thousand yard back this season. And and I kind of wonder when they get in that situation that you mentioned, like they get inside the red zone, like there's no doubt in my mind in the Detroit San Francisco game that the running backs are getting the ball in the red zone and they're going to get opportunities to score because those teams 
are built that way. Christian McCaffrey, the Niners gave up a lot to get him. They like to get him the ball in different situations, uh, you know, running and catching passes. Detroit does what they do with the run game. That's a, a fundamental part of their game. And, in fact, a lot of people laughed at the Lions when they moved up in the draft and drafted a running back, and everybody was like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is like a fantasy league faux pas from Dan Campbell. But, you know, we all are sort of looking at these teams built in a way that values it. And for the Chiefs, it's Mahomes. And I keep coming back to the Ravens' defense. The more we talk about this, I just think that the Ravens' defense will handle Patrick Mahomes. And it's as simple as that. And well, I think there's a threat here that, that Baltimore wins the, a very low-scoring game. And here, I mean, the thing is, is Buffalo was really banged up on the defensive side, and they kept losing players as well. So it could very well be, John, where the Chiefs looked really good you know, offensively against the Bills because the Bills are playing their second, third-string guys, where Baltimore's not doing that. Baltimore has stars everywhere, and they're healthy. So you could be right on that. You could be. It could be a thing where the Baltimore defense really just swallows up the Chiefs' offense because that offense, like you said, those weapons aren't as good as they used to be. And I'm I'm also wondering about you know look Kansas City's been there. There's a hunger factor that, that from the other teams in this tournament now. This is like the equivalent of the college football playoff. By the way, by the way, how much better is it that the NFL does their system the way they've done it, and you know you don't end up with the top one and two seed like college football does with the four team invitational tournament with only four seeds making it. And, you know, we get the Chiefs and we get the Ravens and we get the Detroit Lions, the uninvited guests, playing against the 49ers. Like, this was not, you know, necessarily like a huge surprise that two 12-5 teams get there. But, you know, you had to go through the Packers. You had to go through the Cowboys. You had to go through the Eagles. And certainly the Bills, uh, you know, had the home field on Kansas City and didn't advance. And so I, I just think it's the NFL gets it. And I'm hoping the 12-team playoff in college football feels more like this next season. I, I would argue, though, that it made Week 18 very irrelevant. The Chiefs didn't play any of their guys. The Ravens didn't play any of their guys. That's what's going to happen in college football. There's going to be these conference championship games that don't even matter. When Alabama takes on Georgia, neither team needs to win that game to get into the college football playoff. So what's and the point will, of playing? And they will sit guys down. <laughs> yeah, and then then we don't care about that game, where at least last season the Ducks and Washington, neither they, both those teams have made the 12-team playoff. Well, how about but that this? game mattered well, so much because winner got in. Well, what if college football says that game matters because of seeding? And by the way, this is how we're seeding in the college football playoff. Your top four teams don't have to play. You're going to sit. You're going to get first-round buys, and 5 through 12 will play. Um, maybe that conference championship game becomes a big deal, and and everybody has to play it. But I get what you're saying because it really doesn't matter if both Georgia and Alabama are going to the – college football playoff, the expanded playoff, if both Oregon and Ohio State are going to the expanded playoff, you know, what does the potential Big Ten championship game or the SEC championship game mean? But what if you now say, hey, the winner of that game gets a bye? Now all of a sudden it's a playoff game. 100%. They, they have to figure something out because, I, you know what, I think they've made such a big deal about conference championships. Unless they're just going to do away with all conferences, which is possible at some point they just get away with all of it, but... I don't know. We've we've put so much emphasis on it that in this playoff system is really devalues the whole conference system. And so for me, it just I'm a little worried about it, John. I'll be honest. Like I, I you know, I want to see the 12 teams. I think it's going to be good because it's going to put teams in there. There's going to be upsets. You know, fan bases are going to get more excited. But man, it takes a lot of pressure off of uh, some of these big time ball games we have in the final two weeks of the season. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a fair concern. I, I'm among those who think the playoffs going to be great. Uh, I don't know what you think, but I can tell you, you know, today on the show we talked about Justin Herbert, who I think won big this week. Jim Harbaugh in with the Chargers. Herbert getting a coach who will have a little job security will stick around. I think it was exactly what he ordered. For as much as we want to talk about, you know, Justin Herbert's been up and down a little bit in the last year as an NFL quarterback. I think we uh, definitely have to recognize that, you know, he is, he's had three coaches. He's now in his third head coach in the NFL. He had three in college. That's six coaches since 2016. Think about that. Six head coaches in eight years for Justin Herbert. He'll finally uh, get Jim Harbaugh, and it'll look like he'll get him for a while here. So I think that's good for Herbert. I think he's a big winner. Uh, another winner in the, in the Harbaugh transaction, I think, becomes Dan Lanning, the University of Oregon coach. He gets Harbaugh out of the Big Ten. Michigan will have a coaching change there. Lanning picks up players in the portal. He's been picking them up uh, you know, amid the Washington-Alabama uh, fiasco. He's gonna, you know, Oregon gets better there. And he gets rid of Kalen DeBoer. Kalen DeBoer no longer at Washington, off to Alabama. He doesn't have to face DeBoer until potentially gets into the playoffs. So Dan Lanning, a winner in that Harbaugh thing as well. All right, we're back tomorrow with another great show, The Bald Face Truth. Not here for a long time, just a good time.